How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one scare. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them so that the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horde. Hey, I'm co-host Justin Bishop here for our uh, final episode of Alejandro Jodorowsky cinema of cruelty are you glad that we've we've got on a, a long it's been a long road gary it has it's that that's a joke for uh star trek discovery fans because uh they, <laughs> no, they enterprise enterprise makes you oh yeah sorry enterprise makes you miss todd i'm uh drinking one more topo for old el topo himself <laughs> el topo tocopia so many so many references to the mole it's like my my dad always said to my mom i hate to see you go but i love to watch you leave yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying that and, to Alejandro Jodorowsky, no. and uh, and she did leave, and she never came back. But that's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> this, this is just going to turn into a Gary needs therapy episode, I think. Well, you know who else needs therapy, Justin? <laughs> uh, no, he he invented therapy. Actually, he, did. he invented his own form of therapy. So it's it's uh, called psycho magic, and uh, there's no no other kind of magic he could possibly do. <laughs> we'll so. talk about psycho magic. I have some thoughts on psycho magic. <laughs> we'll talk about psycho magic here in a bit. But by well, the end of our episode on the Holy Mountain, we recounted a little bit of what Jodorowsky was doing in the years after that film's release. Uh, we discussed his failed adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune and his immersion into the world of comic book writing. You know, when reading interviews with him, it seems that during this time, it wasn't like he wasn't just not making movies because he couldn't get them made or because he couldn't get funding for them or anything like that. But rather, he he simply felt, at least this is what he said, that he didn't have anything to say with the medium of film. And he was content working on comic books until an idea for a movie came along that he felt was worthy of exploration. The interviewer in the uh, director's commentary on the Blu-ray, he, he asked him, uh, sorry, I said Blu-ray, but it's like a 4K. I watched this one in 4K. But is it still Gary called finally Blu-ray? Got a, it's a 4K <laughs> Blu-ray. Yeah, it's a 4K Blu-ray. But yes, Gary finally got a 4K player. Yeah. It's Meaning a, it's a PS5. Gary got a PS5. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why 15 years between your films that it was basically like, because I had other things to do and I had nothing else to say. I'm not an American filmmaker. I don't just make things because I mean, that was basically what he said. That's, I mean, solid reasoning, I guess. I mean, there are other filmmakers who have worked that way, Terrence Malick or somebody like that, you know, but it is, it is kind of unusual, but he does have, he was, he's kind of a filmmaker second at this point, like comic book guy, first filmmaker, second. 
Well, as far as like finding the idea for another movie, it would be a while before that opportunity presented itself. Uh, he had made the family film Tusk in 1980. We talked about that a little bit in our last episode, and that was by all accounts a failure, both creatively and financially. Justin Long, Kevin Smith involved. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting film for Jodorowsky to make. Love, I would love to see Kevin Smith and Jodorowsky hang out. <laughs> would you? I don't know if I, I would. Uh, Kevin <laughs> Smith. Kevin Smith stopped smoking weed, so I don't know that like him and Jodorowsky would. I don't think a sober Kevin Kevin Smith could could handle Jodorowsky. <laughs> well, it would be uh, 1989 before Jodorowsky's next feature film was released, and that film is the subject of today's episode, and it is the conclusion of our series on Alejandro Jodorowsky. The film we are talking about is, of course, Santa Sangre. My mother says he killed a woman in America. A new film by Alejandro Jodorowsky, Santa Sangre. It's been a roller coaster, Justin. Uh, just a roller coaster of emotions. I was reading more, even even four movies in, I was reading more this time around about his uh, rape allegation thing, too. Yep. But he's actually made some statements and some stuff on, like, I think it was his Facebook page. Or I read that one, too, and I read it after we had done... El Topo, after we had already recorded that episode, I read, I, I came across that same statement and he honestly makes some good points. He makes some good points. I think I, I kind of made one of them. When we were talking about it, just about the amount of people that would have had to have been there and just been like, cool. Um, right. Cause the, well, the original story was that it was just him, the actress and two other people is what he made it sound like. Right. Which, right. and then in his, his Facebook post which came out this was and that facebook post was prior to that uh that art show being canceled oh was it i don't even it was it was it was before that so he wasn't posting that in like response to that this was a few a couple years earlier and he basically says it's a pretty long post but he does say that like you know in that original interview i said that it was me the cameraman one technician and the actress but you can't make a movie that way like there were there were lighting people there were all there were dozens of people behind the camera when we made that scene don't you think if i actually did this that somebody would have jumped in and said what the fuck <laughs> like you know uh which to his credit that's a good point <laughs> now obviously like we said during that episode we there's no way for us to know but yeah. uh it logically <laughs> That makes sense. It made me feel a little bit easier about uh, hearing something that sounded more like a real person talking about it instead of the as opposed to making a statement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but and, and and the idea that I mean, in his case, he says a lot of it was because you know you couldn't get a film into America without controversy or for some reason people demanding it, which is also kind of sickening in a way, I guess. If yeah. if that's what it's gonna work, you know, like <laughs> oh, he really did that. Let's get that over here. I gotta see it. <laughs> well, this was like in the time of exploitation movies like Mondo Kane, which Mondo Kane was a movie that 
Alejandro Jodorowsky was a big fan of is part of this Italian movement of, of Mondo films. I don't know if you're familiar with this. We've never really discussed it on the show, but these movies were presented as like documentaries and there was, it was a way for them to show a lot of things that couldn't be shown in movies normally, nudity, violence, things like that, by presenting it as un- quote unquote real. And some of it was staged and presented as real, uh, just like Faces of Death Faces would of later death. do. Faces of Death is like a descendant of Mondo Kane. So Jodorowsky was aware of that. This was like the late 60s, early 70s when these movies were being released. So he was kind of using the same approach to getting recognition for his film that they were doing which is saying hey this shit's real when in the case of mondo kane some of it's real some of it's not just like later on faces of death a lot of that as we know because we did it on our old show a lot of that was staged you know so it was just a matter of like manufacturing controversy it it seems like yeah and and, you know my point i think from el topo still would would be uh not to just make this all about that again but that contextually you could see how it would be some shit he would say because he constantly says shit so i'm willing to to buy that but i don't blame you if you still hate him because of it yeah or for any other variety of reasons there's plenty (laughs) (laughs) well uh speaking of santa sangre santa sangre is kind of unique in the films that we've discussed during the series so far you know, Jodorowsky had adapted other people's works in the past, uh, both The Severed Heads, his short film, and Fondo and Lise were very loose adaptations of existing work, and Tusk was based on a novel as well. Uh, and of course, we know that he tried to work on Dune, which was based on a series of novels. But Santa Sangre was a little bit different. It wasn't based on a previously existing work. It wasn't an adaptation of a book or a play, but it was based on a pre-existing idea that was brought to Jodorowsky, uh, uh, brought to Jodorowsky by producer Claudio Argento and screenwriter Roberto Leone. Uh, in the case of Santa Sangre, Jodorowsky was, uh, in essence, a director for hire. Although, if you've seen the film, then you know that Jodorowsky certainly managed to turn it into something deeply personal and distinctly Jodorowskian. I hate that you might have invented a new term right there. Jodorowskian. I think it is a term that people use, but if it's not, it's, I mean, it's, you know, you've got Lynchian when people talk about David Lynch, you've got, I mean, Terry Gilliam's autobiography is called Gilliam-esque. You know, like these words exist. I don't know that Jodorowskian was an existing one, but I feel like I've, I've come across it. I don't think I made that one up, but, but who knows? Maybe I did. Um, It actually, uh, now that we're talking about all of this, it feels like something he might use regularly. (laughs) It does, it does actually. (laughs) Not not very Jodorowskian of you, bro. Now, the history on Santa Sangre's origins uh, is a little bit fuzzy. In watching and reading interviews with Jodorowsky and both Leone and Argento, they, they sometimes contradict each other, which makes it a little bit hard to distinguish like where the truth actually lies. Uh, Oddly enough, Jodorowsky and Leone's versions are pretty similar, whereas Argento's varies pretty wildly from theirs. Uh, so I was I was going back and forth on how to handle this, like how to figure out what where what, what's actually real, what is the true story here. Uh, so I, and I decided that instead of trying to figure out which is which, I'm going to instead present both versions of the story to our listeners. And just let you guys decide what you think is real and what's not, <laughs> because that's just an easier way to go than trying to to uh, decide, try to decipher these old men's memories from something that happened several decades ago. 
So I'm going to start with Claudio Argento's version of the story. Now, I'm sure that the name Claudio Argento sounds familiar to a lot of our listeners. Uh, any fan of Italian horror films would probably know the name. Uh, a screenwriter and producer, uh, Argento primarily produced films directed by his older brother, Dario Argento. Uh, in fact, if you want another little cinema shot connection, uh, Claudio Argento helped to produce George Romero's Dawn of the Dead alongside his brother and was an executive producer on Two Evil Eyes, uh, both films that we discussed during our very first ever series here on the podcast. So get your uh, Charlie Day Always Sunny memes out uh, <laughs> for all these connections. Uh, according to uh, Old Hodo, it gets more complicated Hodo. every single episode. <laughs> it does. <laughs> that it diagram. Really does. Uh, according to uh, Alejandro, uh, he says Claudio was at this point in his uh, career trying to really break away from his brother. This was like a big thing for him because he felt like he'd done too much with him. And so, well, he, he almost exclusively, <laughs> almost exclusively worked with his brother. So I understand that. Ironically, though, he ended up making a movie that feels very much like a Dario Argento movie. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, according to Argento, he had been a fan of Alejandro Jodorowsky and had hoped to work together with him on a project. He wanted to give Jodorowsky a project called The Templars, which was to be this large scale epic set in medieval times. Uh, of course, at this point, Jodorowsky had been out of the film world for like nearly a decade. So not only did Argento not know where to find him, he didn't even know if Jodorowsky was still alive. Uh, he had just kind of fallen off the map. He was off the grid uh, living in Europe, which Argento didn't know. But eventually Argento was able to track him down. He was living in Paris where he was living as a comic book writer and a sometimes tarot card reader. He was uh, deeply into tarot at this time as he still is. But this is when he was like, he, he had like a cafe in Paris where he would do readings for people regularly. He can do it with one card now, which is like unheard of apparently. I don't know. I was just hearing him talk about it, but <laughs> I, I don't know what that means. <laughs> yeah well so one is of the it, interviews like somebody asked him was like i heard you could do it with three cards now instead of the whole deck or something and he's like yes yes i could do it with three i could do it with one is <laughs> yeah. but so. i've looked as from the beginning of this series i've been trying to like figure out tarot just based on just wanting to understand where he's coming from because he uses so much tarot symbolism and i feel like over the course of the like i don't know what two months or two and a half months we've been working on this series I am more confused than ever about, about how tarot works. I have no fucking clue. Not at all. Uh, anyway, after proposing the temp, this uh, Templars project to Jodorowsky, Alejandro, he seemed interested. And Argento paired Jodorowsky up with his screenwriter friend, a guy named Roberto Leone, to write the script. Well, that project would eventually fall apart. It would derail due to budgetary concerns. Uh, this was, I mean, it was gonna, supposed to be this really big epic film. Uh, it was going to cost a lot of money and distributors didn't feel like Jodorowsky was a bankable enough name to warrant the cost. But Argento, you know, even after this fell apart, he was still determined to work with Jodorowsky. And after this project imploded, Jodorowsky told Argento about an original idea that he had had, a film called Santa Sangre. Well, he told him this idea, Argento loved the concept, and he and Leone worked on the screenplay with Jodorowsky, hoping to make it uh, what, according to uh, Argento, quote unquote, more commercial. Uh, now, this version of the story from Argento, th this is backed up 
by the on-screen credits. If you're watching the movie, it gives Jodorowsky an original story by credit. It says original story by Alejandro Jodorowsky, whereas Roberto Leone receives the sole screenwriting credit. So you read original story by Alejandro Jodorowsky, screenplay by Roberto Leone. All right, so let's talk about Roberto Leone's Santa Sangre origin story. So Roberto Leone, that's a name you're probably a little less familiar with than Argento, but he was an Italian or is an Italian screenwriter and director who has over 70 screenwriting credits to his name. He actually is still working to this day. Santa Sangre is probably his most well-known film, but he's also written films like uh, there's one called My Dear Killer, which was a Giallo released in 1972. That's pretty, uh, pretty popular if in, the, in the Giallo circles. Uh, Sergio Martino's American Rickshaw. Uh, which stars Donald Pleasance and uh, The Magic Touch, which is this early 70s action film starring Kirk Douglas. Those are some of his more well-known screenplays. Well, according to Leone, the origin of Santa Sangre came from the days when when he was younger, he was in college. He worked in a library uh, during college. It was a library at a psychiatric hospital. And he tells this story about how one day he's working and one of the patients, this guy who would regularly help him out, he was like assisted him in the library. He started uh, looking sideways. That was Leone's words for it. Uh, And he was saying, shut up, shut up, like talking to himself. Well, Leone, uh, obviously concerned and understandably (laughs) concerned, (laughs) asked him, he's like, what's wrong? What's going on? And the answer he was given from the guy was, uh, oh, no, nothing. I have a voice that tells me to kill you, but don't worry because I love you. (laughs) So uh, as you can imagine, that left an impact on him. That's a weird story, too, because it it reminds me of, uh, I just thought of this, but like that Halloween story, like John Carpenter, you know, like uh, where he went to a mental institution. I don't remember that one. Well, he, he just tells a story about like going into the institution and for violent criminals or something. I forget why they were even there, but that there was a kid like in the mental institution that just stuck with him who just sat in the corner and just like stared straight ahead and just like Um, made no emotion, no, like nothing. It was what impacted him. And like, it sounds like Halloween. And no, it sounds like the Donald Pleasant's description of Michael Myers. Exactly. Yeah. The the, the devil's eyes, you know, that whole thing. Well, that experience, according to Leone planted the seeds of what would later become Santa Sangre saying that over time, he kind of used that to conceive of a story. And this is a quote from him to he conceived of a story in which even the worst demon actually can't forget that he is an angel. Granted, some of these quotes from Argento and, um, and Leone are translated from Italian into English. So they're, they're a little bit awkward. I actually found a, a really long Facebook post No, it wasn't a Facebook post. It was an IMDb review from Roberto Leone where he reviewed Santa Sangre on IMDb. (laughs) But instead of like actually reviewing it, he just in the review, he just gives his like his story of the origins of it. Yeah. Uh, He's also got a YouTube channel that where he reviews movies and he's got a, a video on there where he talks about the origin of Santa Sangre, which is very similar to what his Facebook or his IMDb post said. Uh, which is also in in the some of the interviews on the Severin Films 4K, he recounts the same story. So he tells the same story over and over and over. Roberto Leone does, but uh, so he had this idea. He became intrigued by the idea of of writing a serial killer story, where by the end of the film, the audience has more sympathy for the killer than they have for his victims. 
Uh, he saw this as kind of a challenge to himself as a writer. Like that's a very difficult thing to write to have a guy who's like killing people, murdering women. And then by the end you feel sorry for him and you like care about him. So he saw this as a challenge for himself as a writer, as a screenwriter, like this is a hard thing to do, but I'm going to try to do it one day. I'm going to do this. Well, later on when he was working on a project with, uh, with Claudio Argento, he told Argento about this idea. Argento was immediately kind of drawn to it. He liked the, the idea of, you know, having a killer who becomes sympathetic by the end. That led to the two of them to begin kind of working on a story treatment for it. Well, once they finished this treatment, they decided they wanted to present it to a director that they thought would best be suited to the material. Originally, Leone actually wanted to direct it himself, but they decided they needed somebody else, somebody with more experience as a director and more possibly commercial appeal. But they really wanted somebody who, like, whose sensibilities fit the story that they had conceived. And the guy who they thought of was Alejandro Jodorowsky. That's a go-to. <laughs> of course. You know, when you're <laughs> looking for somebody who's got a commercial appeal, that's the first name that comes to your <laughs> <laughs> We need this movie to be a blockbuster. Yeah. Let's <laughs> hire this fucking guy who uh, hasn't made a movie in almost in 15 years. Well, this is the part where these two versions of the story overlap a little bit. Uh, both Leone and Argento mention how difficult it was to track down Jodorowsky in Paris. But once Argento was able to get a hold of Jodorowsky's agent, they were able to set up a meeting with him. However, Jodorowsky only wanted to meet with Leone, not with Argento. And they weren't really sure why uh, Jodorowsky only said, I want to meet who wrote the story. So Leone travels to Paris to meet with Jodorowsky. And here's how that meeting began. According to Leone, this is from that same IMDb post that he made. Uh, I'll just read this quote in full. And again, it's kind of, it's translated from Italian into English. So it's going to be, it's a little awkward, but he says, I went to meet Alejandro in Paris in the entrance hall of his agent's building. While I was going to take the elevator, an elegant man has sprung from the shadows, curious, particular, completely dressed in purple. He also had purple shoes, a purple shirt, the purple tie. He was completely purple. He said to me, oui, c'est moi. He says, basically, are you Leone? Then he says, it is me, Alejandro Jodorowsky. Imagine, imagine this. Uh, you're, you're walking into this building and out of the, I just see him emerging out of the shadows, dressed head to toe in purple and saying. So he's dressed up like the Joker from Batman. Right, exactly. Just saying, <laughs> it is me, Alejandro Jodorowsky. Like what and what a first impression. I know we, we talked about like uh, some of these things that can make a good like little movie. This one, this one might be one like just having Leone like walking along and that happens. And he's right. like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I just, I picture Jodor, you know, that scene and bringing it back to Halloween, you know, that scene where Laurie is, she's, she's hiding from Michael Myers and you see his face in the closet just gradually become more visible. <laughs> right. That's what I'm picturing is that Jodorowsky's in the corner of this office building, just in the shadow and gradually you just see him emerge from the shadows. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> like a ghoul. <laughs> Well, Alejandro didn't want to meet in his agent's office. He called it up this. He's like, let's not meet in this place of merchants. He's like, let's go down to the bar and let's talk at the bar. So they did. They go down to the bar they, to have a drink and to talk about this. And during the talk, Jodorowsky asked Leone, when did you write this story? Well, about a year ago is what Leone said. And then Jodorowsky says, when exactly? So Leone thinks about it. Uh, he remembers that the night he sat down to start writing it, his daughter had had a fever. So that night had kind of stuck out in his head and he 
remembered, okay, it was March 29th. Well, what time did you write it? Jodorowsky asked. Uh, about half past one or two in the morning, so very late. And here's how, this is what, this is Jodorowsky's reply. He says, I knew it. That night I went to sleep early and the angel of stories has passed over Paris to bring me a story and saw that I slept and continued to roam, saw that you were awake and gave you the story. But the story was mine and you are a thief. The old angel of stories. The old did. angel of stories. Uh, again, this is Leone's first time meeting this guy. <laughs> this, is, this is his first impression. Uh, is Jodorowsky's like, yeah, that was meant for me, but I slept through it. So he just, he just went on to the next writer he found alive or awake, I guess. So uh, now but, to most people, that would sound like a crazy quote, but you folks have been along the ride <laughs> with us this whole time. You've been along for the whole thing. So that's you know. pretty tame, honestly, on, on <laughs> yeah, the, sca on the scale of, of Jodorowsky weird quotes. That's uh, that's pretty on the on the lower end, I think. It's low key Jodorowsky. He just <laughs> uh, and, and he probably really he believes it. He so. didn't talk about balls or anything in that one, which he does nope. a lot, which is weird. Yeah. <laughs> So Jodorowsky ends up agreeing to direct the film and he and Leone begin rewriting the script together. During their writing, Jodorowsky told Leone the story of a guy named Gregorio Cardenas Hernandez, also known as Goyo Cardenas or the Tacuba Strangler. This guy was the first serial killer whose case was widely published in the Mexican media. He was a incredibly well-known, th this would be like us talking about Charles Manson or something, you know, uh, the writers used details from Goyo's life, his real life story, uh, as they were developing the script for Santa Sangre. In fact, Jodorowsky tells a story of a time, uh, and I, I've seen this story told in multiple places, but he tells a story of a time back, it was a, right after he'd made Fondo and Lise, he was still writing uh, the Panic Fables, remember the comic book, the comic strip that we talked about during that episode, and what he would do is he would hand deliver his comic to the newspaper every week. And he had this habit, this routine where he would stop at this small cafe on the way to drop it off. Well, one day uh, he's at this cafe, he's sitting at the bar enjoying some coffee and this little small man with glasses, kind of a, he described him as having like a little bit of a pot belly glasses, bald head. He comes up to Jodorowsky and says that, you know, he's a, he's a big fan of, I'm a big fan of your comics. And then he asked Jodorowsky, do you recognize me? Jodorowsky did not recognize him. He says, should I? Should I know who you are? And the man replied, well, everyone recognizes me. I'm Goyo Cardenas. Well, Jodorowsky was shocked, uh, as anyone would be when a serial killer who had murdered 17 women sits down at the bar beside them and starts making small talk. Uh, imagine if you're like, imagine you're like at fucking Starbucks and uh, I don't know, Ted Bundy comes and sits down next to you. <laughs> right. You're like, hey, do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like that would be that would throw anyone off a little bit, I think, you know, I'm super famous. <laughs> yeah, I'm really well known. People, mo most people know who I am. So Cardenas told Jodorowsky uh, that he had been in an asylum for many years and, until he was eventually declared sane. Uh, he had been rehabilitated and released back, you know, back to live the rest of his life and that he was now working as a lawyer and was married with several children. Now, I looked into this a little bit and I don't know how much of this story is true. The, the, the story of Jodorowsky meeting Goyo Cardenas at the bar could be true. It could be 100% bullshit. It's hard to, there's nobody you could ask except for Joe Dorowski, who claims it is true. And Goyo Cardenas is dead at this point, I think. So I don't think we can ask him. But the part about Goyo being released from prison 
becoming a lawyer and getting married and having children is in fact 100% true. Like he is seen in Mexico as this like example that rehabilitation in the prison system can work. And he became a lawyer. He has like four kids and he spent the rest of his life as a lawyer. So that part is true, at least. Just think if we could have gotten it together in America, we could have had brilliant neurosurgeon, Dr. Jeffrey Dahmer. (laughs) That would have been great. Uh, I don't know what the limit. uh, I think he would have been a chef. Let's be honest. Yeah, you're right. I don't know why I didn't think of that. You know, I don't I don't know the uh, limit on the amount of people you can murder before society takes you out of the game. But in Mexico, we know it's higher than 17. <laughs> I feel like 17 <laughs> is uh, higher than the cap should be. <laughs> as, as progressives, we believe in rehabilitation. So hopefully, I don't know, man, that's tough. I don't I, know. Uh, in America, you get out of prison with a felony and you have a hard time getting a job at the Burger King. And yeah. in Mexico, you can become a a well-respected lawyer yeah they just need to go to school is the problem yeah that's true yeah. <laughs> they just need they need to take out student loans and go to school uh, according to jodo i was going to say this about uh the script writing process the you know he was asked about this per him this is a, from the commentary the guy he's getting interviewed i want to give him credit he's getting interviewed by alan jones who's a journalist in the commentary and uh so there he's asking him about the script writing process and he's like now you're listed as screenwriter like claudio uh roberto like what did they do and he said they didn't do nothing (laughs) he said i mean he literally says they didn't do nothing what they did was speak italian and it need to be written in italian as well (laughs) they were like so had to be uh (laughs) translated over it's an italian film yeah it's an italian Uh, co-production yeah yeah so uh (laughs) that's that's why they're on there that's funny because when you and when you watch the interview with Roberto Leone, that's on that that Severin uh, 4K, he, he is like he constantly like reminds you how much he contributed to it, almost to the point where it's like you're trying really hard to convince me that you did a lot of work on this, which makes me think you didn't really do a lot of work on it. But this is like your biggest claim to fame, so you want to make sure that people know that you're the screenwriter. It's a fucked up version of Ted Lasso and like Leone's like that Nate guy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, obviously, these two stories from Argento and Leone, they contradict each other a good bit. But also keep in mind, these are from interviews with men who are at this point in their 70s and 80s talking about something that happened 30 plus years ago. So it's not surprising that some of the facts are fuzzy. So here's my theory about the way this went down. This is not counting that what you just said about Jodorowsky, because I didn't I didn't have that bit of information. But I think that Jodorowsky had an idea for a serial killer story inspired by Goyo Cardenas, whether it's based on his actual uh, where he sat down with him at a bar or not. I don't know if that's part true, but I think that he had the idea for a serial killer story. I think that when Argento and Leone originally tracked Jodorowsky down, it was for that Templars project that Argento talks about. But when that fell apart, Jodorowsky told Argento about his serial killer movie idea. And that's when the light bulb went off in Argento's head because he knew his friend Roberto Leone had this idea, this concept of a film where a serial killer becomes a sympathetic character. And I think maybe Argento brought the two of them together to combine their ideas and to write a screenplay together. That's my best guess. I can't back that up, obviously, but based on the stories that we just told about Santa Sangre's origin from all of the parties involved, I think that's a maybe as close to the truth as we're going to get. 
That feels uh, like it could be accurate. Yeah, uh, it, it makes sense. You know, it makes yeah. sense. So here's another thing. In addition to writing comic books, one of the things that occupied Jodorowsky's time during the 1980s was his development of a new form of therapy. We've already alluded to it, but he called it psychomagic. Now, psychomagic combines Jungian psychoanalysis. Is it Jungian or Jung? Is it Jungian? How do you say yeah, that? I mean, that's it. I guess I've, it would be I've, Jungian, right? I've said it two different ways. I thought this was all going to be like Chris Angel shit. So I <laughs> well, psychomagic combines Jungian psychoanalysis with forms of superstition and mysticism, like the tarot, uh, that speaks to the subject's unconscious. This is based on a uh, family unconscious. Uh, this is an idea that past familial relationships and traumas uh, that stretches back, you know, several generations in your bloodline all control aspects of a person's current relationships and conceptions of the world uh, that that's a that's a big word salad there but basically it's generational trauma is what is is what uh it is based on the fact that like there are things that are in the in your past bloodline in your lineage that are affecting who you are now that's kind of where jodorowsky is coming from in that there's a documentary uh it's actually on if you have the fondo and lease blu-ray this is one of the special features it's a, a documentary called the jodorowsky constellation uh it's a it's a feature-length documentary about him that covers kind of his entire career but in that he talks a little bit about psychomagic and he says quote if i want to understand myself i have to understand my family tree because i am permanently possessed as in voodoo even when we cut ties with our family we carry it in our unconscious the persons are always alive the dead live with us. Exploring the family tree means engaging in a fierce battle with the monster like a nightmare. So hearing that, you can kind of understand how these ideas would shape his work on Santa Sangre, just based on the, the plot of the film. Now, as for Jodorowsky's therapeutic techniques that are used in Psychomagic, uh, I, watched, I watched this documentary, uh, and I think it's all a crock of shit. <laughs> like whoa no, no offense to coming anyone. in with a hot take no offense to anyone who's a huge Jodorowsky fan and sees him as some sort of guru but uh and I am inherently skeptical I'm a skeptical person but when I watched this documentary it's called Psychomagic a healing art it was directed by Jodorowsky himself uh I was trying to watch it to fully understand Psychomagic or at least understand it more than I did uh and I at the end of the documentary I was only more confused uh and frankly kind of angry that I'd wasted my time on it because it's a bunch of horse shit <laughs> because it just it made me mad uh and part of that's from my background that we don't need to get into now but uh it just it it he seems like a scam artist to me honestly that's exploiting people's personal traumas and uh i think as a i really think it's a crock of bullshit but uh you know that's where he's coming from now i think that some of the but no offense but no offense <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe some offense is intended. I don't know, but <laughs> I mean, I, I think that some of what he's talking about as far as like general, I think generational trauma is a thing. Um, I don't think it comes, I don't think it's a genetic thing. I think it's a psychological thing. Like your grandpa fucked up your dad's so your dad is fucked up. And that made you fucked up because of the way you right. were raised, you know, where not like, it's not like inherent in your DNA. That's what I think. I just think it's, you know, it's something that can be broken, the way that he decides to break it, which is by doing all of this. Basically, he has people perform a series of 
things. It depends on what their what their problem is. That is supposed there these these like actions that they're taking are supposed to unlock parts of their unconscious that are and he is he's having them do specific things to target whatever their issue is, right? Uh, like physical things. These are physical things, like acts that they he has to have them do. And a lot, and for some reason, in most of them, they're naked. And there's a lot of there are so many dick and balls and old lady boobies and all kinds of stuff in this documentary. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, I even texted you during one of them because I'm like, oh, he's having this like 47 year old man who has had has daddy issues. Uh, he's having him unlock his inner child by running around Disneyland dressed in a little like sailor outfit, like you'd see a little boy in a 1940s cartoon running around Disneyland. I was like, well, at least there aren't any balls in it. And then the very next scene, the dude's in a church, pulls his pants down and starts rubbing red ink all over his balls. <laughs> and then puts on some little gold shiny shorts, paints his entire body gold. Head goes to on Mr. Toad's wild ride. And no, this is after he's <laughs> left Disneyland. Um, and he just walks around Paris covered head to toe in gold, just wearing some little, little uh, booty shorts, little gold booty shorts. And that's supposed to fix him. <laughs> and, and that is honestly the, the tamest of the, the examples in that documentary. Well, I need to know where that guy is now. Yeah, I don't know. He's probably in, hopefully in real therapy. <laughs> i don't know man watching that documentary I, I was trying not to go on a rant on this but here i am watching that documentary there's one scene where jodorowsky's in front of this whole like a like a hall full of people uh you know he's on a stage and there's a bunch of people most of it's him working one-on-one -on -one with people but he's giving this lecture and doing this psychomagic like demonstration and he has this woman who ha come up who has cancer and he's supposedly like he is saying like I'm going to do this for you. We're going to heal this cancer. And okay. that just kind of gave me PTSD from my days growing up in mega churches where guys like Benny Hinn would come in and purport to heal people on stage, you know, and these guys are fucking shams. They're, they're charlatans. They're con men uh, who are exploiting people who are vulnerable and who are going through true trauma and I don't, that just, it rubs me the wrong way. So like watching him on stage doing the exact same thing, I'm like, yeah, you might not be doing it saying that like G Jesus is healing you or whatever Benny Hinn was doing, but you're doing the same fucking shit. You're, you're giving these people false hope. And you know, it, it just really rubbed me the wrong way watching it. It's anyway, always crazy to me how that people get away with that too. Like, like if your cancer's not healed, obviously you would, uh, then it's God's will. Yeah, right. oh yeah, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. <laughs> that's it. That's, the, it that's always that's always the excuse. We totally healed it. God put it back. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. He decided, <laughs> no, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> You've still got some more suffering to do. Anyway, that's my rant on that. So I got that out of my system. <laughs> All right. So where were we? Anyway. Psycho Do you feel better I now? Did do you feel better about getting all that out? A little bit. Because in a way, I feel like that was Alejandro my own form of psychotherapy. Yeah, I think he's healed you. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you, my guru. So the reason I mentioned psychomagic, though, was because the that idea of generational trauma is thematically very important to the story. Uh, I So you can see how that, you know, the fact that he'd been working on that during the time that this story was conceived, how it, it kind of wove its way into the story of Santa Sangre. So it is important to bring up because it is a part of, you know, of Jodorowsky's story 
Well, when he agreed to direct Santa Sangre, Jodorowsky agreed to accept a nominal directing fee in exchange for total creative control, which he was given because he'd always had total creative control, uh, at least on the films we've talked about here, not necessarily so much on Tusk, but uh, on the other films we've talked about here, he had final cut everything. Well, in addition to being influenced by the story of Goyo Cardenas, who had what psychologists described as an unhealthy relationship with his mother. So you can see how that plays into the story. Jodorowsky was also influenced by his own childhood, drawing on memories of, uh, of the circus. Remember, both of his parents had worked for the circus at some point. And of course, drawing upon his terrible relationship with his own mother. Well, and his own father, for that matter. He also described the film as a process of his own emotional psychoanalysis and of finding, this is a quote from him, Redemption for my own misogynistic past, uh, which seems like a weird take when talking about a movie where a dude just kills a bunch of women. <laughs> but he's, uh, <laughs> he's working out those issues I on guess, screen. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, I'm well, killing and, my mom and everybody in this film. <laughs> Every woman that shows any kind of uh, any kind of kindness towards me, murder. That's healing. <laughs> That's what healing looks like. It, healing looks like chopping your mom's arms off. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, he, he didn't chop. Yeah, it yeah. was his dad. But well, in previous episodes, I've also mentioned uh, Jodorowsky's affinity for casting his own family members in his films, and this time he actually has all four of his sons in the film. Uh, unlike all of his previous films, Jodorowsky actually doesn't appear on screen at all in this one. Uh, although he did originally consider casting himself in the role of Phoenix's father. Uh, the guy who does who does cut the, the woman's arms off. He was really originally thinking he'd cast himself in that, and I'm not really sure why he ended up not doing it. In the in the commentary, he just they asked him why he's not in the movie. He just said he felt like he was too old and it would give yeah. time to his sons. So sure. I don't okay. know. But he also seems and we we'll talk about this later. But he also seems like he regrets the decision to put his sons in it too. So it's kind of weird. But well, oh, really? Anyway. Interesting. Yeah, interesting. Well, for Phoenix, uh, which is the main character of the film. Two of his sons were cast to play that at that character at different ages. Uh, playing the younger version of Phoenix was Jodorowsky's son, Aiden, who was eight years old at the time. This was Aiden's first time acting in a film, and he's gone on to appear in a handful of other films, including Jodorowsky's two most recent, The Dance of Reality and Endless Poetry, where he's basically the lead character. Uh, although he is primarily known as a musician these days, where he performs under the somewhat unoriginal stage name of Adenowski. The older version of Phoenix was played by Axel Jodorowsky, who is sometimes referred to by his middle name, Cristobal. I think he goes mostly by Cristobal these days, but he is credited as Axel in the film. So I'll probably just refer to him as Axel just for ease of remembering who we're talking about. I didn't realize this until like literally right before we started recording. I was looking up stuff about him just because he passed away uh, just this past September. Axel did? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I remember seeing that. Yeah, I remember seeing that in, in the news when that happened. Um, but I, I don't think I ever saw a, like a... Um, I couldn't find a reason. Yeah, yeah cause of uh, death or anything. Yeah, he was like in his late 50s or so. He wasn't very old, right? He was pretty young when he... Yeah, yeah. he was 50, 57 years old. Yeah, I'm curious, but I don't know. But I, I do actually remember when that news came out. Uh, I remember, I think we posted it maybe like our Discord or something at the time. Yeah. Well, at the time uh, he, that he was cast in the film, he was 24 years old. He'd already been studying acting. Uh, so it wasn't like he was just this untrained guy who happened to get the role because he was Jodorowsky's son. He'd actually studied at 
studied at the actor studio with Jodorowsky's old boss, Marcel Marceau. He studied under Marcel Marceau uh, and, and at the actor studio. This is, I don't think it's the same actor studio that like James Lipton's at, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was, it, you know, it was a full, even though it was Marcel, Mar- it was Marcel Marceau's school. It wasn't just like a mime school. They did mime and, but they did all, all other forms of theater at this place. Well, Jodorowsky had originally not even considered casting his son in the role of Phoenix. This wasn't like an uh, always planned out, but Axel ended up, he invited his father to his final at the school, which, you know, when you're going to school, a theater school, a final is a performance. In this case, it was a pantomime piece. And after seeing that performance, Jodorowsky kind of had a revelation and he knew that his son would be perfect for the lead role in Santa Sangre. And then another one of Jodorowsky's son, Tio, Tio Jodorowsky, he plays the pimp. Uh, we see him dancing with the tattooed woman. He's the one who uh, he gives drugs to the, the mentally disabled kids. That guy with the little mustache, he wears like the, the wife beater and has the boom box. You know, that guy, uh, yeah. that's Tio Jodorowsky. And Tio, uh, who it seems had a tough life. Uh, he was actually in some street gangs, I guess, when he was younger. Uh, according to his brother, according to Axel, he was not too different from his character in the film. Uh, so it wasn't a, a huge stretch for him to play that character, but, uh, Tio actually also passed away. He, he died about six years after this film. If you read it online, it was, uh, they, it, like, I think his Wikipedia says he died of an accident, but, uh, it seems that he died of a drug overdose and his father just doesn't want to acknowledge that it was a drug overdose. But according to Axel Jodorowsky, it, it, it seems that he died of a drug overdose. Yeah, I believe that. I think in the commentary track, uh, he says it's he died happy he was at a party or something, as the right. way he puts it. But yeah, 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 something like that. And then Jodorowsky's other son, Brontus, who we, we last saw him in El Topo. Uh, he was a little boy, remember, in El Topo that was naked the whole time. Uh, how could you not remember <laughs> how that? How could you forget? <laughs> <laughs> well, he has a small, uh, it's almost like a cameo. He plays an orderly in the film's early scenes when Phoenix is in the mental hospital. He's one of the like nurses that are there. I don't think he has any lines or anything in the film, but you can yeah, see Yeah, it's at the there. very beginning, like when, when they come in and give the dude a fish and you know all that yeah stuff, and, then, and then they you see him again when it cuts back to that that location where he's where they're taking him outside into the square where all the kids are yeah yeah he's, he's there too he's uh and the nurse in that scene or at least in the first i can't remember she's the it was hodorowsky's wife uh at the time which was uh, not valerie at this point he had he had remarried no, at this point, right? i think this was uh natalie or something or victoria i can't remember what he said now i don't even remember i didn't write it down either i was just like whatever he's had a different wife in every movie (laughs) no valerie was in there twice oh okay yeah valerie's in there twice because well because she was in fondo and lisa and she's in the holy mountain i don't think she was in el topo but she's like a main character in the holy mountain remember she was the one with oh yeah 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 Uh, yeah Cell, I think was her character's name. Yeah. Uh, he, he, I did find this one quote randomly in like a list of uh, Hodorowsky quotes. And it was just, uh, why should I find a star? They are a lot of money and trouble. You are a poet. They don't care about that. Then they have a contract. You have to sign a contract that says they have to have 10 close-ups. No, I'll cast my family. They are good actors. Well, on that note, 
for some of the <laughs> for some of the other roles in the film, uh, Claudio Argento had actually wanted the '70s power couple of Angelica Houston and Jack Nicholson for the roles of Phoenix's father and mother. Mm. Uh, Jodorowsky, of course, hated this idea. Uh, he had no desire to work with famous actors uh, for the reasons that you just stated, and he also thought that, and rightly so, I think he thought it would pull the audience out of the film. Uh, although I can picture both of them in those roles, honestly, especially Angelica Houston as, yeah. as the mom. I think that is fantastic casting, honestly, but Jack uh, Nicholson could get pretty creepy, especially yeah. if it was like Jack Nicholson. Now this is seventies <laughs> Jack Nicholson though. So he's younger, but he was still, I mean, this was, I mean, he wasn't that young cause this was what eight or nine years after the shining. Right. Yeah. So, but I will say this whole part of what works for like a movie like this is especially just it not being very familiar. Yeah, you know? I agree. So it, it, it makes sense to not have Jack yeah. Nicholson in there. Well, luckily for Jodorowsky, Houston and Nicholson's asking prices were way more than the production could afford to pay them. So that was right out the window. Uh, instead, Jodorowsky cast a man who he described as an old drunkard to play the role of the father. Uh, the actor was named uh, a guy named Guy Stockwell, uh, who was, by most accounts, uh, an old drunkard. That's based on pretty much how everyone describes him. <laughs> well, in his prime, uh, Stockwell had actually been kind of leading man material. He never quite made it to leading man status. But if you look up old pictures of him, like he's got this like handsome, classic Hollywood actor look, you know, like square jaw. Like he looks like he could have been a leading man. Uh, he appeared in nearly 30 films and 250 episodes of television with roles on shows like Perry Mason, Knight Rider, Magnum PI, Murder, She Wrote, Bonanza, Columbo, and Quantum Leap, where he appeared alongside his younger, more famous brother, Dean Stockwell. Yeah, and the one you didn't mention there is Zorro. In 1963, he played yeah. Zorro and the Sword of Zorro, and as we know, Zorro is Hodo shit. So yeah. this is obviously going to be a match made in heaven, right, Justin? Of course. <laughs> of course. And it seemed like that way at first. You know, Jodorowsky, he went to meet Stockwell about the role. He says that uh, Stockwell was very polite, very professional, you know, when they when they met. But once he got on the set, Jodorowsky described him as a monster. And he didn't mean that in an endearing way this time, like he sometimes does when he describes someone as a monster. Uh, he was often drunk on vodka while on set. He was incredibly difficult to work with. Uh, at one point during the filming, uh, Aiden Jodorowsky tells the story of uh, Dean or uh, Guy Stockwell locked himself in his trailer. He refused to come out. And eight-year-old Aiden Jodorowsky was the one who had to convince him to come out of his trailer because nobody else could get him to come out. I bet it was for the scene where he was going to get his balls burned off and die. Kind of like, <laughs> it's like that Steven Seagal story from Executive Decision, uh, which congratulations, everybody. Uh, that series of words has never before been used in human history. together. <laughs> it's never been strung together like that. You were here for it. <laughs> so, uh, really glad we were able to bring Steven Seagal into a Jodorowsky series. It reminded me of that for some reason. I think because of the, where he refused to come out of he... the people and not coming out because <laughs> they're both assholes. <laughs> yeah. But you've heard that where like John Leguizamo tells that story about yeah. he doesn't want to come out and die because he didn't want to die because he never died in any of his movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man. But so... according to uh, Hodo in the commentary, it was, he, he says it started with two bottles of whiskey per day for guy. Okay. And he says, quote, 
I hated him. I said, <laughs> I, I, not mincing words. He, yeah, he went to Los Angeles, he said, to find a big actor. Now, not like Jack Nicholson big. He said, a f- big, fat actor. He was, <laughs> like, physically large. <laughs> yeah. And he said, he was kind and said, I'll do it. Obviously, then, he's constantly drunk. Uh, and he says, uh, uh, according to Hodo, uh, he says, I hated him because he had changed. And also, quote, I hated him because I hate my father. So I wanted to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> on, on one occasion, uh, Hodo says uh, he did actually use the alcoholism to his advantage. And that was he gave him two bottles of tequila. And I don't know if this was the same situation, but he said he made him drink two, to- two bottles of tequila uh, to fill the scene where he gets naked and dies. Yeah, yeah. So, Will, uh, I've actually, I think I've got that story in the notes here, but. uh, Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely does. Uh, So, Uh, for the mother. Oh, go ahead. uh, I did want to say also, uh, interestingly, uh, this is mentioned too, that the original plan for the character uh, was also, I mean, I guess besides himself, was also Dennis Hopper. Uh, That would be, that's perfect. Honestly, <laughs> he Hopper was apparently a huge fan of El Topo and had met Hodo a bunch of times. Oh, like yeah. I've got a picture that I'll probably post on our Instagram at some point of Dennis Hopper and, and Peter Fonda together with with Jodorowsky. This is right after Easy Rider, right after El Topo. Like they nice. were they were both such big parts of that counterculture scene that they they crossed paths quite a bit. Yeah. Um, he said that uh, he kept telling Hodo, like, I, I want to work with you. I want to work with you. And uh, he said, well, all right, well, he, he called him and said, I want you to come do this part and I can pay you $200,000. Uh, and Hopper told him, quote, I would never work for that amount of money. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, guess I, really- I don't know if that's an exact quote. That's a quote yeah. from Hodo about what Hopper right. said. He says he thinks that uh, it actually happened that way because Hopper had gotten sour uh, on Hoda, I guess he would gone to do after Easy Rider. He had uh, done his next directing gig. It was the last movie, and he shot it in Peru. Yeah, and uh, it was an experimental film. And he came back and he gave it over to Hodo to edit it. And I guess, uh, I guess Hodo got too experimental with his experimental film, and he was not <laughs> happy with the editing process. He still gives credit to Hodo, I think, in it, but uh, it was not was was not the final happy. product edited by. I think they they got somebody else to do it again. Because I've heard, uh, I've never seen that that film, but I have heard uh, stories about how bad it is. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and and Hodo says that too. Like he's like he's like, and then I I went and saw it, and they had had like the studio did something else, and it it was not done very well. Or I think it got, like I think that. it got Dennis, Dennis Hopper put in director's jail for quite a while after that. Like yeah, he had a lot so of maybe, goodwill after after Easy Rider, and then that kind of ruined everything. Yeah, but also he he says uh, uh, one quote in there during this was he said, uh, "But this is American actors. They keep telling you, I want to play with you. I want to play with you.' And you say, fantastic. And they say, okay, ten million dollars. And well, no, <laughs> can't do that. <laughs> For the role of the mother, the mother, by the way, her name is Concha. Do you know what Concha means, Gary? Uh, I don't Spanish. So I mean, head, I mean, literally, it means like, like a shell. Like there's a concha bread uh, that that is popular in Mexico. Uh, but as a piece of slang, it basically is like a slang for a vagina. It'd be like naming a character, but not like not an endearing 
name by any means. It'd be like naming a, an American character in an American movie. It'd be like naming a woman cunt. <laughs> Basically, nice. that, that's the equivalent. So her name is Concha. Concha and her magic hands. So um, for that role, Joe Dorowski tells you what he thinks about his mother, I guess, right? I guess. <laughs> That's why that uh, name uh, did not survive or whatever we were talking about last episode. <laughs> well, for that role, Jodorowsky cast a well-respected Mexican actress named Blanca Guerra. Uh, and he cast her after seeing her in theatrical productions in Mexico City. Uh, he had actually originally, when he wrote the script, he had wanted a, uh, a little person that he describes as a midget in the role of the mother, which was an idea that his producers very quickly nixed. Um, when the uh, interviewer of the commentary asked why her, uh, what what made you pick her, he literally says, because she, she's she's uh, very fine. I didn't want a regular person. She looks fine. And the journalist is like, well, she certainly has a big personality, right? Like She's got a command with her voice and all that. And he's like, yeah, sure. He just thought she was hot or what? Like, what? Yeah, it just sounds like he was just like, I thought she was hot. <laughs> he's I, I gotta tell you if there's a commentary out of all these that you watch unless you just want to know what the fuck's going on in holy mountain and el topo uh you can watch him you can watch the commentary for uh santa sangre and he just sounds grumpy <laughs> he just sounds like he doesn't want to put up with this guy's bullshit he just wants to be by himself talking yeah that's what he wants without somebody like directing it right well, for one of the film's other prominent roles, the tattooed woman, I don't think she's ever given a name. I think she's just credited as the tattooed woman in the film. But uh, Jodorowsky cast a woman named Thelma Tiksu. So Tiksu, she, if that's how you, I'm, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that right. I don't really know. <laughs> so I apologize. Uh, but she led a fascinating life. She grew up in Argentina. And by the age of 13, she was dancing as a featured performer in cabarets. And she would work as a successful showgirl for much of her career, often as the lead, uh, the lead dancer in these performances. And she became a pretty big star uh, on the nightclub circuit. Uh, she worked in, in uh, she grew up in Argentina, but she eventually moved to Mexico City. So Jodorowsky, uh, while he's looking for an actress for his film, for this role, he went to one of her shows. And she tells the story of, uh, you know, she's doing her performance and he comes in. Shows up late, shows up dressed all in purple. I guess he was going through his prince phase at this point or something. Maybe that's all he wore was purple at the time. Uh, but then he left before the end of the show. But then he did approach her afterwards. And whatever he had seen during the show sold him on her for the film. And she, he asked her to be in the film. She had appeared in a couple of movies prior to this. This wasn't like a first-time thing for her. Uh, but she didn't have a ton of on-screen experience. Although if you look at her, her resume, she did... Uh, go on to have several roles in television as she got older. She was in a lot of telenovelas and things like that uh, up until I think she was in her probably 60s or 70s. She passed away a couple of years ago. I think she had a brain tumor or something along those lines. I think um, I did read that. Uh, how to pronounce, by the way, dot com. Uh, how to pronounce that, that whole sentence didn't work. You get it. Anyway, uh, <laughs> how to pronounce dot com says dot, dot com. Uh, yeah, says that it's T show. T-show. T-show. Good to know. And it actually literally has how to pronounce Thelma T-show. Oh, well, yeah. It's probably the most most well-known person with that name. Yeah. So the tattoos that are painted on her were designed by an artist named Sergio Aral. 
So Jodorowsky and Aral's relationship actually went back to the mid-1970s. Aral was working as an illustrator on a magazine that Jodorowsky was publishing. And the two had kept in touch over the years. And when it came time to make Santa Sangre, uh, Jodorowsky reached out to Aral and asked him to design the tattooed woman's tattoos, despite the fact that by this time, Aral was actually a fairly famous musician. He was the lead singer in a band called Botellita de... Harris, which means I think bottle of sherry, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they were they created a subgenre known as guaca rock, uh, which is actually the name of one of their songs. It's pretty fun. Uh, I listened to that, I listened to that album this week, and it's pretty fun. But uh, that was his band. But so he was working full time as a musician, but kind of you know, I guess just as a favor to Jodorowsky or whatever, he decided to come on and help with this production, and. When they first applied the tattoo to uh, tissue's skin, is it that's it right? Tissue, uh, according to that website, I feel like I'm saying tissue in a funny way. <laughs> but, I get you. Oh, it's T-show, uh, T-show, T-show. So when they first applied the tattoo to T-show's skin, they used what Aral called uh, Hollywood paint. So this was basically a paint that was used to create fake tattoos in movies. But most of the time, when it was used, it was just to make like you know a small tattoo on someone's arm. You know, uh, something small, not something that covers their entire body. Uh, so when they applied just this huge amount of this tat- this tattoo paint to her skin, her skin absorbed it, and they found out that it was toxic, and they ended up having to run her to the hospital because it started making her physically ill. You got to be careful with that paint. Uh, I, I remember when I was in musical theater, uh, our director had written a show we all had to learn called uh, Broadway Dreams. That's about a little girl who dreams of being a Broadway and she's dying or something. And anyway, she wakes, she's in a dream and ends up on uh, Broadway. And she's, or she's hanging out with Broadway characters. So it was a way mm-hmm. to get all these different characters and then perform songs from different Broadway plays is, is what we were doing. Anyway, the point is. What song is, did you sing? I was, uh, I, I was uh, Roger from Rent nice and, yeah <laughs> and so we got to do the uh 525,600 wow, I, I wish there was a video of that somewhere <laughs> there may be but i don't want to find it anyway <laughs> uh so there was one guy in our group that uh wanted to be uh a member of the blue man group and so he did that but he used like regular old house paint or something on him the first time yeah. And uh, that uh, it don't do that. Go well. No, <laughs> <laughs> they they fixed that real quick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like on the Wizard of Oz. Didn't the Tin Man get? He got like poisoning from the silver, the silver makeup that they were using on him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it'll that stuff will fuck you up. Yeah, you got to be careful. It's filled with chemicals. <laughs> well, they so they had to find another solution for her tattoos because I mean she's a very prominent character, and I, I mean she is in various states of undress through the whole movie. So you can see all of her tattoos, you know. Uh, so the the solution they found was a pretty low tech one. They ended up applying the tattoos with big ballpoint pens. They just drew them on her with ballpoint pens and then used the food coloring for the colors on it. Cause obviously that's non-toxic because we eat it. Uh, not that we're not eating toxic shit all the time. I'm literally drinking a uh, Swedish fish flavored energy drink right now. That's probably going to kill me. But I was about to say, I've got a monster <laughs> over here, which I know is going to be the end of me at some point. <laughs> but uh, they, they were looking for a, you know, a non-toxic solution. So they use food coloring. But because of this technique, it was really easy for the tattoos to rub off. So 
Tisho was not allowed to shower for the entirety of the shoot for, for seven weeks. She was not able to take a real shower. Uh, she also couldn't like sit down for long periods of time because I mean, the tattoos are on her butt and stuff too. And her butt is featured very prominently <laughs> in the film, especially in that, that one scene um, where, where it's like close up on her butt while she's like backing it up towards uh, yep. the, the pops there. That's, that's the one. <laughs> yeah, he he's like talking about it during the commentary. Like, look at that! It's like a horse. <laughs> like, like, all right. I don't think that's the uh, compliment you meant it to be there. <laughs> just big and muscly. I mean, he, she does get reincarnated as a horse later on in the movie. Oh Jesus! Remember that uh, in the graveyard yeah. scene. Yeah, uh, there you go. But, which they also had to figure out a way to paint all the tattoos onto a horse, which was not easy. Uh, but, but I never uh, even made that connection. But a hundred percent, that's probably what he's referring that's to. What led to that? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. he just saw her bend over. Either he was saying that as a reference to what's going to come, or he was like, he saw her bend over and was like, oh, she's gonna be a horse at some point. She's gonna turn into a horse later. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she also, like, when she went to bed at night, she had to be conscious of what scenes they were shooting the next day so that she would kind of sleep on the opposite side from what was going to be on, like, facing the camera so that she wouldn't have to redraw everything every single day. Katja legitimately cut her arms off. Wow, that is method acting. <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. No, I, that, that didn't happen. But No, oh, thank you for clarifying that that was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> just needed to make sure nobody was listening that, that you know he he he'd be doing some stuff i know i mean he normally just finds people without arms and legs yeah that's true that's movie, a good so. point yeah. yeah that's fair but you had to have the earlier scenes with her with her arms i mean the first scene you see her and i think she's standing like with her arms outstretched in front of the church you know uh mm. the very first time you see her on screen but oh here's another little uh, note about t-show so for the knife throwing scene Joe Dorowski had originally wanted to use a dummy. Uh, he didn't want to use a real person in that scene. He had hired a real knife thrower from the circus, and they were just going to put a dummy in position for, like, the close-up scenes where you see the knife hit the board. And then in the wide shots, they would show her. So Thelma Tisho actually convinced Joe Dorowski to allow her to be in that scene. She That was her idea, which I would have thought that that was something he had insisted on, but he was actually terrified when they were filming that scene. Yeah, he was either, I couldn't figure out in the commentary if he was either saying the actress is very scared or very scary. Uh, but it must <laughs> be scary, but he does talk a lot about how everything you see in the movie is real. And uh, he's almost hard to keep on track. Uh, I keep referencing the commentary, but this this is where you can get some good Alejandro stories. Yeah. But I mean, it's just funny to, to watch, to listen to him talk to this guy. Um, the Alan Jones guy, like trying to talk to him about something and he'll, uh, he'll try to ask him a question about the making of the film. And then Hodo will say one thing and jump to something else weird about the scene. Like, <laughs> of course. Oh, so how did this story come about here? Well, Claudio Argento wanted me to look, look, these are real prostitutes. I have real prostitutes in my movie. <laughs> he just, all right. Like so child. back to the story. Tell us a bit about your thought process here. Were you making this for more mass appeal? Look at the scene. It's interesting because I risk my life. <laughs> That's so par for the course for him, though. I know it is. What he does, that particular point was when they're showing, like, when they're, they're going through the city, 
Mm-hmm. And up to the circus tit kind of thing. Oh, that like and that like, like sweeping like helicopter yeah. shot or whatever. Or it's a and crane he talks shot about how like the helicopter was way lower than it was supposed to be. Yeah, like he just kept telling him, "Go lower, go lower, go lower." <laughs> and uh, they were like, "It's pretty dangerous. We could have died." Yeah, they're in the middle of Mexico City. <laughs> yeah. Well, the role of Alma, who is the mute deaf girl who befriends Phoenix, uh, that was also played by two different actresses for different ages. You know, the younger version of Alma is played by an actress named Faviola Alinka Tapia. Uh, and her father, actually, his name's Tio Tapia. He appears in the film. He he's credited as businessman, but he's the guy who, when they're during the church demolition scene, he's the one. He's wearing like a blue suit. He's got a mustache. He's yelling oh, like, yeah. "Get them off my land!" He's the guy who's like yelling about that and telling them to just tear it down, regardless of if they get out of the way or not. That's uh, that was her real life father. He just got I got guess got cast just because he happened to be there on set. <laughs> Uh, the adult Alma was played by a 19-year-old woman who uh, is an American uh, named Sabrina Dennison, who is actually deaf-mute. And uh, she tells stories about how difficult communication was on set because any direction to her had to be translated. You know, if it was coming from Jodorowsky, it had to be translated from Spanish into English and then into American Sign Language. So that made it very obviously very difficult. You've also got people having to translate between Argento and and uh, and Jodorowsky on set between Spanish and and Italian. I think they both speak English a little bit, but Claudio Argento's English is pretty bad. Yeah, uh, he. I think her mom's the one doing the translating in in her scenes, and mm-hmm. uh, he he's very clear about like a, a lot of uh, parents being on set for the kids' scenes and stuff yeah. like that, and the animals aren't really dead. Yeah. Point, like with the elephant you know like it's, that elephant is fine it's honey <laughs> we use honey to make the blood <laughs> they didn't actually murder an elephant thank you uh, uh so, i mean at this point who the fuck knows with this guy but he is yeah. working with you know a well-respected producer i don't think they're going to allow any any real violence on set one thing i thought was funny too is they talked to him about uh uh you know that that it's in english and and yeah and he talks about uh you know, it being in his best interest to make it in English, I guess for like more broader appeal, it was some boring right. answer, you know, basically. Yeah, yeah. But he was saying that, uh, you know, he he made sure to like use like a lot of Mexican actors or uh, to even in the Italian, like when they dub it in the Italian, he's like the Italian dub, they had to use fake Mexican accents. that'd be interesting to check out (laughs) i don't know that i would be able to pick up on it honestly check out the (laughs) the italian dub with mexican accents santa sangre was filmed primarily in real locations in mexico city uh the circus for example that was right in the middle of the city center which according to argento was actually a pretty sketchy area uh they actually had to have police protection during the shoot to keep the cast and crew safe there yeah, of course, the most dangerous areas of Mexico City, per Hoda. I mean, that's he's always, it's always about risking lives, just the craziness, the danger. Uh, he does say where the place where the uh, church is, that whole area. This was the most dangerous part of Mexico City that you could go to. Six months after they filmed there, apparently there was a huge fire, and all of all of this stuff burned down. It's due to a fireworks accident. And when they cleared the rubble, they found the body of a rat that was 60 kilos, he says, as big as a dog. Uh, for those who don't do kilos, except in your Coke orders, uh, I think that's just over 130 pounds. So not a tidy dog or rat. 
probably not a real one, but who knows? That sounds like one of the rodents from Princess Bride. I don't know. That seems unlikely. But that's what he said. Well, Gary, I think you uh, mentioned this briefly back in our Fondo and Lisa episode, but one of the locations used in this film was the house of Emilio El Indio Fernandez. He's the uh, the famous Mexican director who had threatened to kill Jodorowsky after Fondo and Lisa's premiere. Remember that story? <laughs> uh, well, he had died a few years earlier, but his daughter allowed them to use Fernandez's house for the scene with the female luchador. Uh, in fact, the room they used was the very room that Fernandez had died in. <laughs> so they used the room he died in for that scene. Uh, speaking of the cast, though, I actually tried to find out who played the luchador because it's it's obviously a man, uh, and I could not, I don't, I couldn't find it in the cast list anywhere. Yeah, I mean, there was there was like it looks like John Cena, but it's not. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think I saw it either. And so I, I was trying to figure uh, out if it was someone who was like an actual like luchador or something. Yeah, like I tried that. to look that up too, but I, I didn't see anything. Yeah, because there's nothing listed as like luchadora, luchadora or anything like that or wrestler or anything along those lines in the cast list. So I could yeah. not figure out who it was. Maybe it was someone who was a luchador and they were being because they were being seen without their mask on. They didn't want to be credited. That's a that's a good point. Uh, yeah. Although usually you could say like El Santo or Blue Demon or whatever, you know. But yeah, but maybe at if least you're showing your, maybe if you're showing your face. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so, I guess they could use their non wrestling name though. You know, yeah. it'd be Weird. like if uh, Undertaker showed up in something as Mark, whatever. What is his name? Mark something. Uh, Callaway. <laughs> Mark Callaway. Yeah. NWA was just in Mexico as we're recording this yesterday, and yeah. uh, it's crazy that stuff still goes on. Because, oh, yeah. like, it uh, like I, I was looking at some of the luchador profiles that were wrestling with the NWA folks and stuff, and like their profiles, even like if they don't have their mask on, there's like a towel over their head or something, you know, oh, like wow. in the gyms and stuff. Can't so show that face, weird. yeah, it's it's a big thing down there. Well, much like in Jodorowsky's previous films, a lot of the actors who were used in small roles or background roles were people that he just kind of found during the course of filming. This is something that he seems to do often. Uh, for example, the guy that we see pull his fake ear off to reveal this like gaping hole in the side of his head. Uh, yeah. That was someone that Jodorowsky's assistant found. Uh, the guy had, as Jodorowsky put it, done a Van Gogh and cut off his own ear earlier in his life. I don't know why. Uh, but when Joe Dorowski found this out, you know, his, his assistant brings him this guy, Hey, this guy cut his own ear off when he was younger. He doesn't have an ear. Now look at him. Joe Dorowski's like, well, we got to put him, got to throw him in the scene that may, that honestly made me think of Sam Raimi where somebody like brings him an idea. And he's like, Oh, it's in, that's in the movie, you know? Uh, but it's just the more uh, morbid version of that. <laughs> like, Joe like, weird. Oh, someone with a physical anomaly. Yeah. Throw them in the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's that's his shit. That's what he wants. Just anything that's abnormal, uh, that is that's what he does. It's an effective scene. I don't know what it means towards the narrative of the story at all, but it is memorable for sure. Oh, it's because uh she is uh she's deaf and uh mute and she can't speak, but he can't really hear. And then he's raping her with his ear or something like that. His his ears. It's it, he says it in the commentary, and it is something literally like that. And and just the amount of times this guy does say rape in anything, he uses also it like, bothers me. He uses it very nonchalantly, <laughs> just for like for, with like various meanings. 
uh, like anything that's intrusive at all. He just uses that word. It's, it, it, it's true. He he does do that. And, and like, like even when he's talking about it, it uh, Hodorowski's dude, like mm-hmm. raping Frank Herbert. Uh, it's really odd. But anyway, at another point during filming, Jodorowsky was asked to be a judge in a beauty contest that he he said was called Miss Transvestite Mexico, uh, which at this point in Mexican history, and this is, you know, the late 80s, that was something that he could have been arrested for just being a judge in this this contest with uh, drag queens. Sounds like Tennessee. Sounds a lot like Tennessee. Uh, that's you topical. Fuckers. <laughs> you fucking assholes. Uh, <laughs> but he agreed to do it on one condition that the drag queens in the contest would appear in his film. And they did. Uh, they're actually, they're in the scene where the pimp characters like leading the kids, like he's the fucking Pied Piper uh, through, through the, uh, through the city with his boom yeah. box. And the kids are following where he's leading them to his prostitute. Uh, when it, it shows like close-ups of all the, all of these uh, drag queens. And that's, that's them. That's the ones that were in the contest, which I, kinda, t- I, I love those little touches, honestly. No, no, no. It's 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 wicked. Like, I mean, on one hand, it's like some of the stuff can make you uncomfortable, like that ear thing and stuff. And sometimes you're just like, this is really unique. He's obviously, I mean, a huge fan of Todd Browning. And uh, oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, I, and I hate to say that with like the trans or drag performers or whatever. Uh, but I just mean like anything that's not considered, quote unquote, normal. Right. Is, yeah. And is especially at this time, this place in time, uh, you yeah. know. It's it's like even the the people uh, that that are in the elephant scene where I mean when the elephant dies and there's the funeral for the elephant, mm-hmm. uh, all everybody in the city is real. They just stop traffic and like carry this huge ass casket down the street. You know, <laughs> those people had no idea what was going on. <laughs> they just so, saw this person. So it's like the crowd, the crowds. You mean that's just people living yeah, in Mexico? The, the crowds. Yeah, they just thought the fucking juggernaut had died or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then they dump it down this ravine, which was just like a landfill, I think, on the outskirts of Mexico City. Well, that's yeah, and that's where I was going. It's like all the people that were up on the cliff there were actual, like I, I guess, like poor people. That he said he had brought them there because he had promised. He said, you know, when animals die in my movies, then we, they become meat or whatever. And he said that he promised them all meat, so they knew they were going to get food out of this deal. So they all stood hmm. there and watched. And he said, when they all like come down the hill like crazy, he said that was not planned. That was just what they did to rush wow. the casket thing and get food. Did he just fill the casket with meat? I mean, it's not it's a what, real. It's, it's not what real it sounded elephant. like. It's not actual yeah. elephant meat, obviously, but <laughs> no, no, no. But I, 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 it was real meat was in huh. the casket. But interesting, yeah. And they're <laughs> and they're getting the meat. It's it's real. It's real weird. He, he actually, he uh, he gets uh, very defensive about some of this stuff too, because the journalist asks him sometimes about exploit exploitation, like or mm-hmm. exploiting other people. You know, like yeah. like this, and they they do it especially like with those kids, like in that scene with the. The mentally handicapped kids that yeah. are going around and they're giving them, you know, not real cocaine, probably. Hopefully. Uh, <laughs> but then they have the party, you know, thing, and they're, you know, they're all in that courtyard or whatever. And mm-hmm. and uh the journalist specifically points it out there. It's like, you know, a lot of people would say you're, you know, where did these kids come from? And he was just like, There's a school, you know, and I got them from the school, and then they were like, Well, why uh a lot of people said you maybe you're exploiting these kids and blah, blah blah. And he's just like, who? Who said that? <laughs> so that who you, said tell me, you tell me their names. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I gave these kids a party. 
they're just having a party. And he's like, they're having fun. There's nothing wrong. And he's yeah. just like, people, what will people say about art? I, I could um, honestly, I, I understand how people can see that scene as exploitative. Uh, I think they actually filmed it at their school. If I if I think I saw that somewhere that they actually filmed oh, it at their school. But yeah, I, that, that scene could definitely be seen as exploitative because you could see that he's including these kids uh, as a form of like shock value. Uh, like, but we also know that he's got an affinity for people with uh, physical otherness, you know, uh, and thematically, I think that scene actually works pretty well because you're kind of seeing how they're very innocent, the, the kids, you know, when we first meet them and you're seeing how this world that, that the film exists in is like corrupts them, which honestly adds to Phoenix's story, like this world around him being corrupted by outside forces. That's that's 100% his goal. I mean, yeah. that's that's literally what he's going for, even with the cocaine stuff and stuff. He, he, he goes into detail talking about they were just going to watch Robinson Caruso. Right. That's where they were supposed to be. Yeah, going. exactly. And he's like and then he's talking about like the commercialization commercialization of everything. And then we're pushing like cigarettes and all this other stuff on kids. And like this is the they're getting corrupted by being out in the world. And these are the most innocent. Mm-hmm. And they're being taken to all these places and shown all these things and ruined by society yeah. basically so while people could see that as being exploitative because he's using people with actual you know mental disabilities uh they, they're not being abused and i and i think that they're being used in a way that does resonate in over the in, in the con in, in the context of the film you know what i mean uh so while i wouldn't i wouldn't argue against anyone who says that that exploitative i think that there is i think when you when you're truly being exploitative it's without good reason other than shock value and i think he's not i think he's not really going for shock value there and he does go for shock value a lot but i think in that in this specific case i don't think that's what he was going for i think it just in his head with everything he's got to push the boundary as much as he can and Mm -hmm. like having I don't know, like regular teenagers or something in that scene wouldn't have done it enough. Like it wouldn't it have had the same like, impact. Yeah. Yeah. I need to show you like people really being taken advantage of. Here. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, in addition to found people, Jodorowsky would also often use found sounds in his film. Uh, the music in Jodorowsky's movies have never been what you'd call conventional, uh, nor are his methods for creating the music. It, I mean, go back and listen to our, especially uh, El Topo and, and Holy Mountain episodes for a little more info on that. But in the case of Santa Sangre, Jodorowsky would go out into the street at night. Remember, they're shooting in this like really dangerous part of Mexico City. So he's going out there in the middle of the night to, to kind of listen to the sounds coming from the city. Uh, and he would record those sounds and use them as part of the film soundtrack. Uh, for example, this is my probably my favorite example of this is in the scene where he's shooting the father's suicide, where the, the father you know stumbles out uh, after his balls have been burned off with acid. <laughs> right. <laughs> and he and he kills himself. He's like slits his own throat. Well. Jodorowsky said that he heard an old drunkard singing. He used that term again, old drunkard, which I love that term, by the way. I just, I don't know why. But That's it's, what I, I hope for someday. <laughs> <laughs> Better than being a young drunkard, right? Yeah. <laughs> so he hears this old drunkard singing. And so basically there's a drunk guy uh, out on the street, out in the city center in Mexico City singing this drunken tune. And 
Jodorowsky recorded him and they used that song in the film. And I think it's an incredible use of music in that scene because there's just something very haunting about it. It's like just, there's no score. It's just the sound of this old drunk guy singing. And I don't even know the song he's singing. I think it's in Spanish. So I don't think I even know the words to it, but uh, it's very effective in the way that it's used in that scene. I would agree with that. That whole scene is actually, yeah, it's really good. And just visually it's impactful as well. Yeah. Cause you also see like these, like drunk or homeless people kind of sitting behind him with like a little campfire in the background. Yeah. So you could think that that song's coming from them. You can't, they're kind of out of focus. You can't really see if they're singing, but the way that it's framed, it could very well be them singing, you know, so it yeah. works in that way too. Uh, and then there's another time where he was looking for music to accompany the, uh, the Santa Sangre worshipers, the kind of like church cult thing that the mother is a part of. And we, we see them as their church is about to be demolished. Uh, it's another really great scene, I think. Well, when trying to decide on what the appropriate music would be, Jodorowsky goes out. He's like kind of listening to the city, trying to find inspiration, you know, hoping that something would come that would be like, this is perfect for this scene. He really wanted uh, like a song, like a folk song or something like that there. So he's walking out. He's trying. He's kind of like running it over in his head, and he feels a uh, something hit his foot, and it's a, it's a cane from a blind man, you know, the canes that they use. This cane hits his foot and he looks up and he sees this blind man there and he starts talking to this guy and he asks him, do you know the names of any Mexican folk songs? Like, you know, he's, I'm trying to find out a, a song to put in this part of my movie. And the man told him that he in fact was a singer and he belonged to a music group that consisted of all blind singers and musicians everyone in this music group was blind uh, it was 40 people in this music group and they were known for performing mexican folk songs and there, there was this like signature song that they did that was a song about the end of the world well jodorowsky obviously would love that idea of having 40 blind people in his movie singing a folk song about the end of the world he ended up not only using the song but using the music group so in the scene where the mother is you know, standing there in front of the church and you have all these people walk up behind her and it is a huge group of people. He used all 40 of these people and they're singing this song in the film. I think, and I, I love that, that little touch. It's neat. I mean, and they're really, yeah, they're really playing and singing. And uh, <laughs> this is just reminding me more of like this divide, uh, this uh, uh, antagonist commentary <laughs> track because it's like, it, it's like this journalist is like, Cause like Jodo will like go in to want to talk, tell this story. He's like, yeah, look at them. They're all blind. Like all of these musicians are blind. They're playing their music and this is great. And blah, blah, blah. And uh, the journalist's like, well, why, why is that? And he's like, why, what, why are they blind? Because I like it. <laughs> <laughs> like, like in the elephant, uh, it, it, like the the whole elephant dying scene. Like, why is there an elephant dying? And he's like, why, why, why does an apple tree make apples? Because I felt it. <laughs> and the acid just, on the junk scene. He's also I just remember that the acid thing. He's just like, why always with this? Why there is no why when you make art? It was fantastic. Who would do this? Only me. <laughs> he's just over over explaining shit. Like I am 80 years old, sir, and I do not have to explain myself yeah. anymore. <laughs> you gotta put you gotta put Alejandro by himself watching the movie. Right. Let him just <laughs> he'll tell you when he wants to tell you. Right. <laughs> 
Well, uh, for the rest of the film's more traditional music score, Jodorowsky hired an English composer named Simon Boswell. Boswell had worked with Argento in the past. Uh, his first job as a composer, his first credit at least, was on Dario Argento's Phenomena in 1985. So just a few years before this. That's the one with, um, what's her name? Jennifer or uh, uh, Connolly. Connolly, yeah. Where yeah. she controls the bugs. It's a, or, it's a great movie, I, I think. Yeah, uh, no, I like that one. That's a good one. And then he followed that up with Demons 2, which was uh, written by Dario Argento, directed by Mario Bava's son. But he would later go on to do movies like Richard Stanley's Hardware, uh, Hackers, remember Hackers, uh, Perdido Durango, which I highly recommend, and Danny Boyle's Shallow Grave, which was kind of his breakout movie in the mid-90s. Hackers was great, like with Matthew Lillard. Yeah, that's the one. Angelina Jolie. One of the most uh, difficult aspects of the film was filming the relationship between Phoenix and his mother, uh, specifically the scenes where Phoenix is making his hands work as his mother's hands. Now, Axel Jodorowsky's background and mime came in handy, dear, came in handy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Got him. <laughs> oh man, that was an accident, but I love accidental puns, <laughs> but his, his background and mime came in handy during these sequences. Uh, he and Blanca Guerra, they would rehearse these scenes themselves and then kind of present it to Jodorowsky for his input. And he'd, you know, give them direction changes here and there. And watching it this time, especially this last time I watched it, uh, I think Axel Jodorowsky's work here is phenomenal. Like, I don't think his, now his performance in the film as a whole, I think is kind of hit or miss for me because he comes off as kind of goofy sometimes, depending on the scene and what he, what's asked of him. But in the scenes where he's performing his mother's hand movements, it is really something to see because he's basically playing two characters at once. His hands are performing independently of his face. Like they truly are. If you watch his hands and watch his face, he is giving two different performances simultaneously and i cannot fathom how he's doing it it feels to me like watching it i was like this is like an elaborate form of the whole like patting your head and rubbing your belly at the same time right uh, like it, it is like a more complicated version of that it is really honestly kind of mind-blowing to me it, you you could almost say like just by having sent him off to like uh marcel marceau's school and stuff like like Hodorowsky's really armed him with the skills necessary <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true you really have to hand it to him for that kind of foresight <laughs> yeah. do this all day well for the uh sequences where the two of them have to walk together and I assume this is the case where they're in the scene where they're dancing too. that first scene we see where they're performing, where they have to kind of, they kind of shimmy off stage. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and on other, in the scenes where they're walking together. So, uh, you know, Phoenix's hands are through his mother's sleeves, but in order to get the two actors to walk precisely together, because they are kind of attached with this uh, outfit they're wearing, Joe Dorowski told Guerra Blanca to put her hand, hands behind her back, obviously, and grab Axel by the balls. He's like, then he'll follow you anywhere. <laughs> so this, um, this sounds like some weird shit that Alejandro Jodorowsky would just make up, but I've seen it confirmed by both Axel and Blanca Guerra in separate interviews. So it definitely happened. Like she was just, just dragging him around by the balls <laughs> in any of those he scenes. Do you think Axel, like at any point, uh, watched any of the director's commentaries or something on his father's films? It was like, <laughs> hey, with the cinematographer, you just used a belt. Right. Did you ever think about that? 
<laughs> we could have done that. We could. Uh, well, I mean, I've at this point, I have seen all of Jodorowsky's movies. Uh, I've I've watched the ones that come that we're not covering on the series as well. I say all. I haven't watched Tusk or The Rainbow Thief because they're not available, but all the other ones. And um, but throughout his entire filmography, I have seen every single one of his son's balls. Every single one of them. <laughs> I was I was watching. Uh, I was watching Santa Sagre today because I like put it odd when i'm like going through stuff too and uh and it was a scene where he's in the the hospital room or whatever and he's like crouched out against the wall and i paused oh, the very it beginning yeah yeah and oh I you get full taint it. in that scene i think yeah the wife had walked in and where i had paused <laughs> it like he just had enough or like his balls were just like hanging there like <laughs> you can see him right past his leg and yep. she walks in and she's got that like what are you watching what, what is <laughs> what is justin making you watch now <laughs> right. that's, what, that's what she was thinking uh well uh speaking of axel it seems like the apple didn't fall too far from the tree because he like his father isn't absolute fucking weirdo like when you, you listen like he seems pretty normal in interviews but so does joe Dorowski a lot of times but uh, he tells the story about you know in order to get in character for the scenes where phoenix is in the mental hospital like the scene you're talking about where he's he's got like a perch he lives like he's an eagle he has a perch and a nest that he sleeps in uh axel here's what he did he bought a perch i don't know if it's the same one we see in the movie or something like that but he just the way he describes it sounds like the one we see in the movie uh then he holed up in his hotel room. Then he bought an actual, an actual eagle. <laughs> he bought an eagle, <laughs> took the eagle to his hotel room, and let the eagle out of his cage to fly around the hotel room because he wanted to be able to observe so that he could become this eagle. Well, unsurprisingly, the eagle shit all over the entire hotel room. So they just had a, a stinky hotel room covered in bird shit. Well, and then he became the eagle, so also Axel shit all over the hotel room. <laughs> He's like, well, I've got to keep it accurate, so just got to shit on everything. <laughs> this method! <laughs> uh, but could, those poor, the poor housekeepers at that hotel. I know. That sounds bad terrible. for him. I feel bad for him. Uh, I, I assume they didn't get their deposit back. How Jared Leto's not worked with Jodorowsky yet, <laughs> oh, I don't God. know. God. Can you uh, well, despite how similar the two seem, Axel and his father clashed on set. Uh, Jodorowsky would, uh, so he, you know, Alejandro Jodorowsky, he would try to show his son how he'd want a scene performed. And, you know, being a performer himself, he would just act out the scene. But Axel didn't want to watch his father act out the scenes because he was worried that if he watched his father's performance, then he would simply be imitating him instead of making the performance his own, which I understand, you know, that concern. But Jodorowsky didn't like that at all. Uh, when And so when Axel refused to watch his father perform a scene to show him how he wanted it done, uh, Jodorowsky said, fine, do it your way. But if you fuck it up and ruin my movie, I'm never talking to you again. Well, after that, uh, the two wouldn't speak on set at all. Uh, instead, they sent messages to each other through Jodorowsky's assistant director like they're a couple of fucking 14-year-old girls fighting over a boy. Yeah, so basically, uh, after Axel said that, Hodo was like, you know what? Fine. From here on, it's hands off. But... <laughs> <laughs> no. the, uh, uh, Hodo talks a bit about this in the commentary. I think it's worth talking about here. Um, that 
not even just with his son, but especially with his son. Uh, there's a question about hearing that he got a panic attack, like right after the casting process before filming. And he said that that's Jodorowsky. Yeah. Yeah. That Jodorowsky got a panic attack. And he says that's actually true that he actually says he gets ill after casting all the time. He's never quite Hmm. sure because he says that when you're creating something for him, like he's written it, he's planned it, he's thought it through like what he wants to do. You can have everything in your mind that you want, but now that you've gotten the actors that you've chosen to do this, they either cooperate and live out your vision or the whole thing becomes a different film because they're fucking it up basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've we've said it multiple times that casting is like 50% of a director's job is, is is going to uh, casting is going to make or break the movie and oftentimes yeah and so it sounds like he's especially worried in this one just because of his kids Mm -hmm. uh being in this and uh so it you know the one that really got me that was interesting with him he's almost emotionally at the time of the commentary track he says he had not seen the movie since its initial release Hmm. uh like that he had not ever watched it back because at that time, his one son had already passed. Right. Then, yeah. So it, it's difficult for him. Yeah. And he also has this, like, it seems like a little bit of regret that especially with uh, his youngest son being in there. Yeah. With Aiden. Uh, with Aiden. he's so young. Because he's so young. And it especially comes out during the knife scene where they're doing the pain. And, like the, you know, he's giving him the tattoo yeah it's tough to watch i mean that he gives an incredible performance but yeah yeah and he and he says that uh related to himself he said one time his dad took him to the dentist and uh i guess at the time you know they were using cocaine or whatever (laughs) for the Mm -hmm. pain Mm -hmm. and uh his dad wouldn't allow them to use that for him when Mm -hmm. he was getting like whatever done to his teeth and uh because he said he needed to experience the pain and learn to live with the pain or something like that and he was telling the story and so that was actually he says he's not like super biographical or whatever like in his movies a ton of times but that that's one thing he could relate to it and he says like looking back like he he talks about with Aiden coming out you know like just like that whole scene and right after he's just saying he's like this is so weird knowing what my son is now and who he is now and and what he does and everything and he's like this is i'm making him into some vision for my thing and blah 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 and the interviewer's kind of like well you you know isn't this good though you've got him on film you know you've got these memories of him as a kid and blah 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 and he's like no this is terrible this is not this is not how it's supposed to be like your mm-hmm. memories and who the person is lives in your soul like this is not He's like, this is, I don't, I, it's hard to explain. You'd have to really watch it, but he's, he, he kind of seems like he's a little irritated that it's his kid mm. doing this role. And uh, I wonder how he feels about Brontus though. in in El Topo. Yeah. It'd be interesting to hear what he thinks about that now. It's, it's kind of weird, yeah. especially considering, well, I mean, I think we know from like El Topo that he was obviously uh, 
he, he apologized in the book. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. apologized that he had made him do the burying his mom's picture yeah. in his toy scene. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It was a rare, weird, emotional moment from yeah. him that it seemed like he was actually impacted by having his kids on the like screen. Like kind of regretted it. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it especially bothered him that if his that if your kid's the actor mm-hmm. and doesn't live up to what you're wanting it to be, that it makes it even worse, I guess. Yeah, him. yeah, for sure. Well, just despite the you know clashing on set, they managed to get the film finished, obviously. Uh, and after the film wrapped, Axel went to Bali just kind of get away from everything, you know, it, go on a little vacation. But he didn't t- call his father. He, like he went to Bali and he just kind of, you know, didn't call his father while he was there or anything. They didn't have any contact. Uh, about a month later, though, Axel received a telegram that simply said, call Alejandro, uh, which that's a, uh, Alejandro, Jodorowsky's kids all refer to him by his first name. They don't call him dad. <laughs> but uh, when Axel called his father, Alejandro said that the, he said the movie turned out great. And he said, you were wonderful in it. And just like that, their, estra- their estrangement ended almost like as quickly as it had begun, it seems like. And they seem from as far as I can tell, they were kind of cool for, you know, the rest of Axel's life. Well, like every other Jodorowsky film we've talked about before now, Santa Sangre uh, did not receive much of a release here in the U.S. Uh, Despite being a Mexican and Italian co-production, as we mentioned, Santa Sangre was filmed in English, and that was because uh, it could conceivably reach the widest possible market by being shot in English. But here in the U.S., it received an NC-17 rating for uh, several scenes of extremely explicit violence. That was the reasoning that the MPAA gave it, although... Watching it now, the violence is, I mean, it's extreme, but I can see something just as extreme on HBO every week. You know, uh, it doesn't seem NC-17 worthy, but I guess this was the late 80s when that was uh, less acceptable on screen. Yeah, wasn't, I mean, he's even, he's even like a pretty adamant about, like, I remember when the mom getting her arms cut off, him talking about, like, it's not, this isn't as gory as we could have been. Like, yeah, this it's is... very like cartoonish almost because they're using that bright red blood that you often see in like Italian horror movies and it makes it a little less realistic, you know? He does talk about that a little too, just because uh, they were talking about like, uh, I think in, in Fado Elise, he used real blood mm-hmm. and um, he was like, yeah, I use, I use real blood there. But after that, it's all been cartoonish or yeah. like blue or black or mm-hmm. like just. Yeah, remember the scenes color. in uh, The Holy Mountain? I think it was where they're uh, the kids are getting shot and it's like blue paint and like all kinds of other crazy stuff coming out of them, like a bird's <laughs> stuff coming out of the wound. <laughs> right. So there was actually an edited version of the film that was eventually released here in the US with an R rating, but it only screened in a few select theaters. So it, it, there really wasn't much of a release for this movie. Uh, the film, though, it was generally well received by critics and is considered by many to be Jodorowsky's best film. Uh, Roger Ebert, in his review, described the film as, uh, quote, a horror film, one of the greatest. And after waiting patiently through countless dead teenager movies, I'm reminded by Alejandro Jodorowsky that true psychic horror is possible on screen. Horror, poetry, surrealism, psychological pain, and wicked humor all at once. Uh, He gave it a rave review. And then in 2008, it appeared 
uh, at number 476 on Empire, uh, the British you know, film magazine, Empire's list of the 500 greatest movies of all time. But I am willing to bet that there are some folks out there who would disagree with that assessment. My only regret for this series ending uh, is that, no, and I say I, that sounds mean. I have plenty of regrets for this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad, I'm glad that we did it. Uh, but uh, my biggest regret will be that uh, looking for somebody who needs a nap was super easy. <laughs> it's going to be a little more difficult on our next series, I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's jump in here with Anton Ego, who gave it one star. Bullshit. The sad thing is. This is the most beautifully choreographed bullshit I've ever seen. I like, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a nice review. Backhanded compliment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you always got to get one of these in here too. Here's Richard Trenton. One star. Santa Sangre. More like Santa Insufferable. It's <laughs> not even a good one. That's not even a good one. <laughs> that guy's trying way too hard. He's been listening to these. He's been listening to these. Somebody needs a nap uh, and <laughs> Every week, there's somebody that's trying to make a joke that so he tr- thought he'd have a stab at it and yeah. uh, failed miserably. Yeah, too bad. This person uh, went back to uh, a previous film for their review title. It was El Poopoo. <laughs> uh-huh. Also, not great. Not a great pun. Horrible. Be grateful that you can watch this film at home on your VCR. This is from 2000, apparently, on IMDb, I, which still so we had DVDs at that point, I think. Yeah. But- he had not upgraded yet. Yeah. Be grateful that you can watch this film at home on your VCR because you're going to want to fast forward through tiresomely amateurish, painfully unedited, faux grotesque buffoonery being passed off as what? Horror? Art? Allegory? Nah. Every scene is too long and too concrete. Nothing is left for the viewer to imagine because it's all played out with a leaded heavy headedness. How can you respect a film which assumes that its viewers are half as bright as 11-year-olds? Hodorowsky likes to spill his guts, a concept which is exactly as interesting as it sounds. (laughs) J. Matthew Lucas gives it one star. I need to watch his more classic films at some point, but as this movie confirms, I just fucking can't with Hodorowsky and his brand of nonsense. And this raping? Oh my God, what is it with this dude and rape? Is there rape in this movie? I don't think so. I can't I don't think. I can't think. Oh of it. well. I mean, well, I mean, she does prostitute out her kid. Well, yeah, that's true. She does prostitute out her kid, and uh, but there's never anything. I guess there's never no, nothing ever happens. But can you imagine? I was watching that scene this time, and I was like, imagine because you know she's she just freaks out when she uh, when she wakes up. Can you imagine? You're sleeping soundly. You open your eyes, and a Mexican giant is. <laughs> holding right. is holding you like a baby a mexican giant dressed as a soldier is holding you like a baby i would have the exact same reaction that she has yeah. <laughs> just start kicking and flailing <laughs> at least <laughs> uh and that guy's huge too because i think uh, uh i mean when i say giant i that's i literally mean he looks like he's got like that that gene that like guys like the great kali and Andre yeah. the Giant have, you know, what that makes them gi- like he like his like that his, tumor on your pituitary gland. Or right. Something. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. like he's got the facial features that are is very similar to the great Kali, actually. Yeah. Yeah. 
this person says buyer beware one star this is a horrible movie not horrifying acting directing sound there really isn't a place to start or stop i had hoped the visuals would be compelling if the story was bad nope all i can guess is this goes really good with crank no no <laughs> never really dabble with that or other stuff so i'm just guessing based on the stories i've read i really have to believe this is a drug user's cult movie or for those who think unicorns make tooth fairies in a shop in the burbs of chicago maybe mm. i love horror or i used to a bit this ain't it i don't even know how to classify this buyer beware when he said this goes well with Crank, I thought that was his further viewing, was to watch this with <laughs> Crank starring Jason Statham. Well, we'll recommend that here. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, this person gave it a half star. Extremely inappropriate. People really have to stop adoring something that they do not comprehend. That's called marginalization. Hodorowski marginalizes any kind of difference, dwarf, handicapped, muscular women, and sells this so-called imagery as surrealism. It is not. It is wrong. Besides, hundreds of chickens were thrown off from a high ceiling just because of his stupid, everlasting Jesus imagery. Animal cruelty. This is the last chance I've given to Jodorowsky. Please consider that he is not necessarily good just because you don't understand. You people are smart, and he throws shit at your faces. I'm not going to defend Jodorowsky, uh, his uh, previous acts of animal cruelty that we've discussed, but those chickens are fine. I was about to say, I don't think the, that there was a... Yeah. The chickens are just like in a barn. <laughs> and chickens, it, I don't remember them being thrown from up high anyway. They're just on the ground. But even if they were, they're chickens. <laughs> they're, they're, they they have wings. I mean, I know chickens yeah. aren't like don't don't like fly like we think of birds as flying. But they but they could go for a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, I had a sneeze. That guy was just that guy was just reaching for something to complain about. I feel like <laughs> it does sound that way. Jack Manon, half star. Flute is a terrible instrument. Not going to argue that. <laughs> I don't know, don't know what his point is. <laughs> Orrin Gray, what an ass star, says, having never seen a Hodorowsky, Hodorowsky film prior to this. I knew him primarily as that director who once bragged about raping someone. Watching Santa Sangre just made me hate him even more than I already did. All right. Luda gives it one star. Luda Chris? No, Luna. Like, oh, like, damn. Yeah. I was really uh, hoping this was ludicrous. Sorry. Luna! <laughs> Use a hoe. Uh, <laughs> That's the whole review. <laughs> <laughs> what, sorry? I think I really like the idea of Jodorowsky stuff, but also based on what I know about the guy and what I saw in this, I truly think he's just the scummiest guy. Like, fuck this movie so much. Every woman in this movie can be replaced with a screaming bag of blood with a hole that can be violated as it's seen fit. I'm so fucking tired of the overbearing mother trope. It's so overdone and unoriginal, and there are some good ideas about it, like parents abusing their kids and becoming extensions of themselves and some fun surreal stuff, but other than that, this just isn't worth it. Uh, here's Jake with a one-star review. Santa Sagre has been officially added to the list of worst movies of all time. Oh, yeah! there we go. 
The writing is atrociously bad. You can find at least one absurdly implausible event in literally every single scene. No, I dare say in every single shot. The acting seems to play along instead of attempting to save this train wreck of a story, and it easily matches or beats the worst, most unconvincing, and most unrealistic acting I've ever seen. It can't even be considered an artsy piece or a film made for the critics because the cinematography, story, acting, music, dialogue never attempt anything out of the ordinary. It is simply a terrible story told by terrible actors who give terrible dialogue with terribly unmemorable music and visuals. I have tried and tried and I honestly can't think of one single redeeming element in this entire film I am very upset that I wasted my time on this trash and I feel like my life was made worse by watching it man I don't I mean say what you will about this movie I know people are going to love it people are going to hate it I don't see how you think that the uh the music and the cinematography or the visuals are uninteresting because I think the cinematography is outstanding. It's easily the best of any of these movies that we've talked about here so far. But also, I think the music is really great. I think not just Simon Boswell's score, but the found music that uh, Jodorowsky includes. And also the, uh, I can't don't remember what artist it is. They mentioned it in one of the documentaries. But in like the death scenes, there's like this really like interesting choice of this kind of upbeat music oh yeah yeah, yeah. which is not written by simon boswell that's like a a musician whose music they use in the film it's also the first one when we get that helicopter shot of the going towards the circus it's the music playing during that but then he plays it like when you know the tattooed woman's getting attacked and things like that it's it's a really weird juxtaposition of um a kind of harrowing scene and kind of really upbeat music but it works really well to me and it's and that guy it, it you know considering his complaints it's a far from conventional choice for right. the, the music for those scenes. So I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> well, the thing for people to keep in mind is uh, with these, uh, you have to remember I'm picking like 10 reviews out of hundreds and hundreds right. of reviews. Of course. And so it's like Twitter, yeah. you know, You're you right. could you could zone in and we're purposefully zoning in on the yeah. bullshit people say about it. Like people yeah, hate, yeah, yeah. hate it. But it's uh, anyway, I'm going to finish this off with the half star from Josh and his review simply says drinking lots of soda in preparation for visiting Jodorowsky's grave one day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's good. Got to give him points. That that that. feels like a good round off for like the whole series. That's good. Uh, well, okay. So let's talk about this movie a little bit. We've, uh, we, we've talked about it a bit, but um, you know, Gary, I, I predicted, I told you this when we, we hung out like a week ago or so. Uh, I, I predicted that you might like this one a little bit more than some of the previous Jodorowsky films because, uh, and I didn't really tell you this at the time, I don't think, but the reason I predict, predicted that was because it somewhat resembles a slasher film which I know obviously you're a fan of. Uh, of course, it also has a lot in, uh, of Italian horror in its DNA. And I know you you like some of that. I know there's some you know, stuff in that subgenre that you don't really care for. Um, Deep Red is still a very sore subject for me for a long time. <laughs> I listeners. knew you were going to bring it up. <laughs> for a long time I listeners. thought of Deep Red while I was watching this movie. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, what were your thoughts on Santa Sangre, both as a film and in relation to the other Jodorowsky films that we've discussed. 
it's weird. Like I, I like this one fine. I don't think he's got a movie that I just like absolutely adore. Uh, mm-hmm. just to put that out there, but uh, this one definitely does have those horror tropes. I don't think he even necessarily think. I mean, I obviously he knows he's he's. I mean, he's got the Invisible Man involved in this thing, mm-hmm. and he's got. Uh, I mean, you could say Psycho or a hundred other things that. Uh, maybe he's referencing anyway i guess uh i don't know if he if he would ever say he was necessarily going for a horror movie or something but this is definitely like kodorowski is as close as you're going to get to him doing a horror movie or to doing him anything that could be like put into a specific genre even el topo is a western quote unquote but it's not really. most people that are into westerns ain't gonna like el topo yeah my dad I, my dad's not gonna watch a clint eastwood movie and then watch el topo afterwards i know and if I'd he does have, i'd love to have been more into hodorowski early on so i could have fed my grandpa el topo <laughs> <laughs> like, let's watch another kick-ass western gramps uh disowned but uh i i think uh i think this movie is visually spectacular like mm-hmm. i think it looks amazing it does and, and that, uh, that severin 4k looks incredible too like the yeah the transfer on that is outstanding you, you can't watch this movie and not think that this is this is done by some filmmakers like this is this is legit mm-hmm. um it's weird though too because i mean and i guess certain things mattered him more than others obviously is that he considers himself an artist like at the core level of that word like so the visuals are probably more important the sounds are probably more important mm-hmm. uh because the acting I, I guess is what i'm getting at is like some kind of kind of awkward kind of weird in certain spots i think uh, axel's performance I, I i alluded to this earlier but i think it's hit or miss i think you know the the pantomiming stuff is outstanding but more of his like emotional stuff is a little doesn't always come across as natural to me was it a little slow for me? Yeah, sure, I'll say it. It was a little slow for me at certain points. But you know what? Uh, that's that's also Giallo for me a lot of the time. So it's uh, that that was one of my big issues with Deep Red was I was like, okay, you know, like this movie's, it moves like an Italian Giallo, like a horror movie. So I, I can't hold that against it. it. It's paced probably how it should be. It just feels like it takes a long time to get to the story that they're, really wanting to get to and yeah uh, i mean i i don't get that from it but i i mean i could kind of see where you're coming from well um, i guess i say that not not for him to get to the story list though because for him that kid early on is as important as anything else sure uh, so i mean that's all origin story you know that's all yeah. that's all origin background yeah i'm just saying friday the 13th got there quicker yeah well uh, they weren't <laughs> sean cunningham wasn't trying to make art <laughs> <laughs> you don't tell him tell him that to his face justin he will fully admit it <laughs> sean cunningham will fully admit that that was a cash grab 100 <laughs> percent. uh nobody's gonna argue that but but yeah. you liked it better did you like it better than the other movies we've talked about what what, what hey, here's you- here's the weird part uh so i would say this is easily the most accessible chodorowsky mm-hmm. movie yeah. for anybody but what would you recommend because i don't feel like this is the most jodorowsky jodorowsky movie i feel like it like i feel like holy mountain is the one i would i feel like 
Yeah, I would agree with that. That Holy Mountain is like the most uh, quintessentially Jodorowskian, but this one is like a better maybe introduction for people who are not familiar with his work. Sure, you could especially if they're like, especially if they're a horror fan, because it does kind of because it does share DNA with a lot of stuff in the horror genre, even though it is very distinctly like a Jodorowsky movie. I think because it somewhat resembles something that people are more familiar with, that this is a better jumping in point. Whereas you just jump in, you go to Holy Mountain and you're jumping into the deep end. You know, that's true. Um, Per him, by the way, it's not, it's not like he was, he wasn't making this for mass appeal. It wasn't like he He just did it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he was, he was saying that like, uh, you know, when the question arises of, you know, were, were you because this one seems like the most coherent uh, streamlined story that you've ever done? And uh, and he's like, no, I, you know, I was telling an emotional story. When I tell an emotional story, I do it in the best way. I think the emotional story will be processed and that that's what this was. So he this says for him, to- this was this was what he meant to do. Yeah. Just happened to turn out that way. Yeah. And so. Well, I you know take it for what it's worth, but it's uh it's it's interesting because I I I loved a lot about it, and there was stuff still I'm like a lot of people are gonna hate this, and yeah. and it's what's even weirder just before you go into your stuff is I think I rank like what I find weird is that El Topo is the movie, and I feel like that is my least favorite out of all of these. That's pro- I would probably say that too. I would. I would say I would say El Topo is my least favorite of all of these. In fact, out of all, all the movies that I've watched of his, I think El Topo is actually at the bottom, um, including the the later movies that he made that I watched. Uh, not counting the documentary, that would be easily dead last. Right. <laughs> but as far as his narrative features, I would say uh, El Topo is at the bottom. I would put this one at the top of the ones that we've talked about on this series, uh, at least. Uh, I think this would be my favorite, and I would. I'll just give you my ranking. This one, number one, Holy Mountain, Fondo and Lise, El Topo. That's my. That's how I rank the four that we've talked. That about. that would be exactly what I would do. Yeah, yeah. that that that's how I feel about it. But uh, watching this one, this time, this last time I, w- I watched it uh, yesterday, day before, and one thing that really stood out for me was, uh, you know, in that during that that show that performance, the first time we see Concha and Phoenix. Uh, putting on their show Concha and her magic hands, you know, that's the first time we're introduced to the gimmick of him, his hands performing while she speaks. Well, when she's performing, what she's doing is she's recounting the biblical story of Adam and Eve. She's telling the story of Genesis of the first sin. Now, in that quote I read earlier from Jodorowsky, uh, the beginning of this episode where he's discussing psychomagic and specifically generational trauma, um, I think he's actually giving some insight into the, some of the themes of Santa Sangre because uh, in Christian tradition, in a biblical tradition, everyone's born a sinner because of the sins of Adam and Eve, who were uh, the first humans in, in uh, the Bible. So in that telling, we as all as humans, all of us carry that generational baggage. We're all sinners because we are descendants of Adam and Eve. So that kind of ties into his whole theme of generational trauma, which I wouldn't have gotten, honestly, had I not also been familiar with what his quotes on psychomagic. But when you know that he was working on psychomagic during this, it kind of clicked 
for me when I watched it this time because you know Phoenix carries his mother with him long after her death uh, in the same way that we would carry the legacy of the first sin of Adam and Eve. Now, I don't put a lot of stock. I, I went on my rant earlier, but I don't obviously put a lot of stock in his psychomagic therapy. But using the ideas that he's established, it makes Santa Sangre the most, I think, thematically clear of any of his films that we've discussed. Uh, because what the movie is really about is uh, Phoenix shedding the generational trauma that's held him as a prisoner for most of his adult life or all of his adult life. Uh, you know, that's what, that's the triumphant ending to the film is him, you know, he's going to jail, so it, but it is sort of a happy ending because he's finally free of the trauma of seeing his mother and father die, you know, and that's yeah. been with him his whole life. So in a way it does become a happy ending, which by the way, there was apparently a, a, another ending originally. And Claudio Argento actually insisted on the ending that we get in the film. That was Claudio Argento's idea. Huh? Yeah. What was the original ending? I don't know. They never describe it in any oh, of the okay. interviews I've read. They just said that there was another ending. <laughs> that right. It was his idea for uh, him to, the, the thing where he like holds up his hands, my hands, you know, that whole thing was Claudio Argento's idea. Um, of course, it, I think it also helps that this film is, uh, like you said, his most straightforward film, plot-wise at least, uh, most uh, his most entertaining film, I think, uh, despite containing all sorts of surreal imagery, uh, following Santa Sangre as a traditionally plotted film is actually pretty easy, and I don't think you can quite say that about his other films. Uh, it still has all of the things that we'd expect at this point from a Jodorowsky movie, but it feels a little more commercial, uh, which is probably aided in part by the, you know, Simon Boswell's music, uh, which is a little more traditional when it's used and the cinematography, which we've mentioned several times. Uh, by the way, the cinematographer is uh, an Italian guy, Danielle Nanuzzi is his name. He did Jesus of Nazareth. Or I'm sure your parents probably watched that as much as mine did yes. when I was a kid, but that's probably his biggest thing though. He's done a lot of movies. He's still, I think he's still working now, but uh, that's probably his biggest, most well-known uh, project. And it probably helped that at this time when he was making Santa Sangre, Joe Dorowski, unlike on El Topo and the Holy Mountain, he had a producer and a screenwriter who were willing to willing and able to rein in any wild ideas that uh, that Jodorowsky had that might derail the film while still allowing enough whimsy to make it feel like a Jodorowsky movie. I mean, that's why they hired him in the first place. They hired him because they wanted to make a Jodorowsky movie, but they were also able to say like, hey, maybe the lead character, this mother should not be a little person. Uh because logistically, how would, honestly, think about that. How would he do the arm, the hand thing if she was, unless he was also a little person? But like, how, how, would, that be, how would that be possible, you know? Uh, so they reined in some of his more outlandish ideas like this without neutering his vision, I feel like. And, and that's the first time in any of these movies that we've talked about where that's been the case, where he's had somebody who tells him, hold on, let's, let's pull back a little bit, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think a good director, even a great director, sometimes needs somebody to tell them no. <laughs> and, you know, and I think sometimes they do. Sometimes they, you just need a second set of eyes and you just need somebody else's opinion and you need to be able to be willing to compromise a little bit. And I think that's kind of what makes this movie better than the other movies we've talked about. 
Yeah, I agree. I think if if there was ever anybody who could use like that, like a good right hand man, <laughs> man, it's a uh, Jodorowsky. <laughs> Is that like another hand needs... joke? Is that another? I, it wasn't intended to be, but it sure can be. Yes. Yeah, you just got to have a producer that's willing to strong arm you into. <laughs> <laughs> stupid. <sighs> stupid. I we're not it. even dads and we're just making dad jokes. Yep. <laughs> All right, Gary. So before we wrap this whole thing up, if you were going to do a double feature with Santa Sangre, or if somebody, you know, uh, enjoyed Santa Sangre and wanted to know, wanted a recommendation for what else to watch uh, that was similar, what would you recommend for further viewing? What would I recommend to watch? Uh, I, I mean, my easy answers here are going to be, I mean, well, obviously the easiest answer is just watch a bunch of Jodorowsky shit. Right. Um, I, I guess any, there's a number of giallos you could throw in there that would feel like this. So honestly, Deep Red, I thought of Deep Red a lot when yeah. I was watching this. So I feel like it would pair nicely with it. But uh, also I would say like Psycho or uh, something. Uh, you could I, I reaching i don't think it's reaching too far but like the invisible man could even be kind of fun just because sure, just because it's got that little yeah it's, it's got, got a weird the, reference to the yeah. invisible man in it yeah yeah i i like uh that, that's fun i i mean psycho is the first one i thought of uh i mean granted there is a whole you could have a whole subgenre of horror films with like manipulative mothers or guys with mommy issues who become killers kind of thing you know uh but psycho is sort of the the original of that right that subgenre so i feel like you know santa sangre is a descendant of psycho in some way so i think psycho i would watch psycho first and then santa sangre but i think well, the angel pretty- the angel of stories like uh skipped alejandro that day and yeah, went yeah, to yeah. hitchcock and so right <laughs> or they they saw alejandro but he was still on stage slitting the necks of geese uh at that time <laughs> right yeah 1960 so <laughs> uh well so psycho is my official selection for that but yeah well i like that one that feels the easiest that feels like yeah. the most closely connected unless yeah. you're gonna throw in a documentary like uh Hodorowsky's dude or something weird to- well i mean with with psycho you've got it's not only a guy who has mommy issues but he is acting out murders as his mother essentially just like right. i mean they, they both have that in common so that's a that's a very easy comparison although obviously hitchcock and jodorowsky have very different ap- approaches to the material so they're both very unique but thematically they they both kind of share that right so despite uh, a you know like we said a very small theatrical release Santa Sangre was actually a big hit on the festival circuit. Uh, it was an official selection at the Cannes Film Festival. And when it screened at the Sitges Film Festival, which is the kind of foremost international horror and fantasy film festival in the world, uh, Jodorowsky received a Best Director nomination. Uh, he, did, he didn't win. He lost to Peter Greenway for The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, which is another outstanding film that I hope that will come up on a uh, roulette episode one of these days. Uh, but Santa Sangre also received several nominations at that year's Saturn Awards. Uh, it was not Saturn Awards is another sci-fi and horror uh, award ceremony, but uh, it was nominated for Best Music, Best Director, Best Horror Film, Best Actor for Axel, 
uh, Jodorowsky, Best Actress for Blanca Guerra, and both uh, Faviola Tapia and uh, Aiden Jodorowsky were nominated for the uh, award that's called Best Performance by a Younger Actor. And Aiden actually won that award. So it uh, it did nice. very well on the festival circuit. Now, uh, Gary, I didn't ask you, do you have any fun facts for this episode? I have one and it's, it's, it's adjacent, but I just thought this was interesting. And uh, so in 1993, uh, Eddie Murphy and Michael Jackson uh, did a music video together about saving the planet. Uh, and it's called What's Up With You? Uh, but it's spelled like W-H-A-T-Z-U-P-W-I-T-U. What's up with you? Wait, is this Eddie Murphy singing on this yes. song? Okay. A- Eddie Murphy Part, singing. Party like all his- the time. Yeah, Eddie it's like Murphy. second album from Eddie Murphy. Like he okay. did a second album. Michael Jackson uh duetted with him on this one. And uh and and the uh music video, uh I think the best thing I saw was like uh, a YouTube comment that said it was like it's like two dudes just discovered they had a green screen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, let's be honest, the fact that there is a Eddie Murphy Michael Jackson collaboration that produced a music video and I have never heard of it. I don't I remember probably this probably it, it that has to speak to its quality. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to show it to you like okay. just after this recording. OK, uh, so you can see it. But uh, the uh, line where the elephant is where where the elephant is dying in Santa Sangre, then literally there is the section where the kid goes up to it and they say, like, the elephant is dying. This is sampled for the beginning of that song. What? <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a weird thing to do. The elephant is dying. So after Santa Sangre, Jodorowsky made a, another much different film, uh, a movie called The Rainbow Thief. It was released just a year later, 1990. And The Rainbow Thief was produced by Alexander Salkind, who had been, uh, he's a producer who had been producing films in both Europe and Hollywood and uh, all the way going back to like the 1940s. I think his first credit's like 1945. But he really rose to prominence with Richard Donner's Superman in 1978 and its first two sequels before the rights got sold to Canon Films and they just promptly destroyed the entire franchise. Uh, but Salkin's wife had written the screenplay for this movie called The Rainbow Thief. And the producer threatened to fire Jodorowsky if anything in the screenplay was changed, if a word of dialogue was changed, he was going to get fired, which effectively curtailed all of Jodorowsky's artistic inclinations. Like the reason you would hire Jodorowsky to do a movie, uh, he basically was not able to do it. Uh, he also forced Jodorowsky to cast movie stars in the film. And we already know about his thoughts on that. You know, uh, The Rainbow Thief actually reteams Lawrence of Arabia co-stars Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif. And it also features uh, Christopher Lee in a small role. Now, this experience and the final product was bad enough that uh, not only did Jodorowsky disown the movie completely, but he effectively retired from filmmaking for the next two and a half decades. 
but it's not that he didn't attempt to make other you know movies during this period, get other projects off the ground. Uh, at various times during the 90s uh, and the early 2000s, he attempted to get a sequel to El Topo made, but he could never find investors for it. Uh, he also started work on a gangster film called King Shot, but again, he was unable to find funding for that project. And over the years, he has continued to write not only comics, but novels, self-help books, and books on esoteric magics, including tarot and psychomagic. And in 2011, he published an autobiography called The Dance of Reality, which covered his early years living in Chile. Jodorowsky's name, uh, once again, came into the public consciousness in a big way back in 2013 with the release of the documentary Jodorowsky's Dune, directed by Frank Pavich. We've mentioned it several times during the course of this series, but I would highly recommend watching Jodorowsky's Dune if you have not seen it yet. Uh, but a lot of people didn't know who he was. You know, at least you know, the masses didn't know who he was until that movie came out. And that kind of, uh, his profile kind of blew up a little bit after that, even though he's in his 80s at that point. Uh, and one of the interviewees that's prominently featured in Jodorowsky's Dune is a guy named Michel Seydoux, who is a French film producer who worked with Jodorowsky on Dune. Well, the two had had a bit of a falling out after the Dune project fell apart, but the documentary actually allowed them to reconnect. And that led to Seydoux producing Jodorowsky's next film, the first film that he had made in nearly 25 years. That film was an adaptation of The Dance of Reality, Released to great critical acclaim in 2013, The Dance of Reality featured an actor named Jeremiah Herskovitz as a young version of Jodorowsky himself, with Jodorowsky's own son, Brontus, playing Jodorowsky's father, Jaime. Uh, so all the stuff that we talked about basically in our Fondo and Lise episode is covered in this film. The film also features uh, Aidan Jodorowsky in a small role. Uh, and Axel Jodorowsky in a small role, with uh, Aiden actually composing the film's music. Jodorowsky followed that film up with another movie called Endless Poetry that came out in 2016, three years later. It was a uh, direct sequel to The Dance of Reality, this time focusing on Jodorowsky's adolescence after he moved from Tocopillo to Santiago, Chile. So basically, The Dance of Reality ends with them about to move, and then Endless Poetry picks up as they've moved to Santiago. Uh, and it once again was very well received. Uh, and this one, uh, Brontus is featured a little less prominently because, you know, his son has moved away uh, or he's moved out of the house. It features, uh, you know, the story we told about him chopping down the tree and then moving in with these sisters where he learned to use puppets. That's all in endless poetry. Uh, but then it cuts to uh, Alejandro as he's older and it switches actors from the kid who was in the, the first film to Aiden, who is playing the adult Jodorowsky in this one. So he's as, essentially the main character of this film more so than he was in the first one. So uh, it was this movie, uh, it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and it was once again, very well received with uh, a lot of critics when it came out in 2016, called it Jodorowsky's best or at least his most accessible work yet. I watched both of these movies. They're very easy to find. They're out there. Uh, you can rent them, stream them. There's Blu-rays out there. They're both wonderful movies. They're both outstanding. They are two of his best movies. I, I, I would actually, I would actually say The Dance of Reality is for me the best movie I've watched during the course of working on this series. Uh, I think it's really good. I think it is. They're both as weird as you would expect from a Jodorowsky movie, but he is clearly uh, 
become a more a slightly more straightforward storyteller like he still gets all of his eccentricities into the movie without it alienating you quite as much i think i, th- I think you, it's still got uh, incredible visuals wild visuals uh but i mean and it features some outlandish stuff i mean there is definitely a scene in the dance of reality where the woman portraying his mother uh hikes up her skirt and pees all over brontus uh oh. all in one shot so i don't think they faked it <laughs> <laughs> you know so stuff like that uh there's definitely some insane it, he is not dulled that like controversial streak that goes through him but i think they are more accessible in general uh they're very easy to follow they're you know they're both really outstanding films uh, if, you, if you've enjoyed the films we've talked about during this series uh, i would recommend checking them out if you want to see further stuff i mean and Jodorowsky himself does appear in both of the films he kind of acts as a narrator in them uh, like narrating his own life, but on screen, like he'll, he'll step into a scene with the actor and kind of give almost some like almost internal monologue, what you would normally get as like, like voiceover narration, but he's actually on screen doing it. It's, it's an interesting choice, but it works really well in the film. Well, when Endless Poetry premiered at the 2016 Cannes Film Festival, Jodorowsky announced his plans to finally make The Son of El Topo, uh, which is what he was calling the sequel. He's also called it Abel Kane at various points over the years. Uh, but uh, he, he said, okay, we're finally going to make this just as soon as financial backing is obtained. Uh, that was at this point, what's that, seven years ago? And to my knowledge, uh, no further development has been made on it. So I don't know where that stands. As of this recording, Alejandro Jodorowsky is still with us. Uh, He just celebrated a birthday, actually, during the course of us recording this. He turned 94 years old. He still works regularly as an artist and a poet and a guru. Him and his wife, uh, his current wife is a visual artist, and they they make art together. And it is uh, hung in, you know, art museums. It is showcased all over the world. His most recent film is the 2019 documentary, Psychomagic, A Healing Art, which I mentioned my distaste for that documentary before, so I won't go into that again. But hey, if you're a completist like me, it's out there and easy to find. You're not not giving it like giving me much motivation to get in there. Yeah, I would say I would say you can skip that one. Uh, Jodorowsky, of course, is a divisive figure. Uh, As we've addressed, he's made some questionable and highly problematic statements in the past. Uh, But even if he'd never made those statements or done the things that he uh, admitted that he did, which, you know, we're still on the fence about whether or not that ever happened. Uh, But even even if it wasn't for all that, even if he hadn't said a bunch of crazy shit, if all you knew was like what you had on screen, I think his work would still be divisive because it's kind of designed to be that way. Uh, but one thing you can say about Jodorowsky is that he's a singular auteur. He is a filmmaker and an artist who creates works that are unlike anyone else's. His biggest failures, which would be Tusk and the Rainbow Thief, have come from the very few times in his career that he has compromised. Uh, his adaptation of Dune fell apart purely because he refused to compromise his vision for the film. And you've got to admire that, even if you don't find that you're a fan of his work. Uh, For me, I I think that his work does have merit. I completely understand that it's not for everyone, and I wouldn't expect it to be for everyone. Uh, But if it were not for Jodorowsky, the midnight movie circuit of the 70s and 80s would have looked very different. I mean, think about this. If you think of like an alternate history where this guy doesn't make movies. If it weren't for El Topo, 
Like, would we have ever seen a racer head or pink flamingos? Because would they have gotten midnight runs if El Topo hadn't blazed that trail? Would Rocky Horror have ever become the phenomenon that it is? And without his Dune project, would we ever have Alien? Without Alien, would we ever have a? We wouldn't. Ha- we wouldn't have Aliens, the sequel. So, what would Ridley Scott's career look like? What would James Cameron's look like if it weren't for those films? You know, without Dune, would would we have Star Wars? You know, like or if if Dune had happened, we may not have ever had Star Wars. And right. obviously, all the offshoots of that, and every movie that's been influenced by Star Wars afterwards. Uh, without his comic book, The End Call. Would we have gotten The Fifth Element or Blade Runner or The Matrix? Like, what would the world of movies look like without any of those movies in existence? You know, if you, if you start playing God and 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 uh, deleting a film like El Topo from history, think of the, the butterfly effect that something like that could have. Right. So obviously we have no way of answering these questions. This is all hypothetical. Uh, but just by asking them, we are admitting the impact that Jodorowsky has had on the world of art and on the world of movies, and more specifically on the world of cult and genre cinema, which is the very thing that this podcast was created to celebrate. So listen, I know that a lot of people don't like Jodorowsky. Uh, our co-host left the show. <laughs> because of this fucking guy so don't Uh, dare say he doesn't have impact (laughs) uh you can love jodorowsky you can hate jodorowsky but what you can't do is you can't dismiss jodorowsky uh movies are a lot of things to a lot of people and different people want different things out of movies uh movies can be pure entertainment they can be manufactured slop just sent out to the masses in order to make money or they can be art they can be personal In rare cases, I think they can be bold aesthetic statements that are made by true artists. And a true artist's work is not made for everyone. It's not made for everyone to like. So love them or hate them, I think Jodorowsky's name deserves to be mentioned as a towering figure in the cult film world, in the history of cult film. I just simply don't think the world of cult film would look the same without him. So you might hate the guy, but this podcast might not exist in its current form if it were not for his movies. So I think he's worth talking about. Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Did I I just give you an existential, did you just have an existential crisis? Just, I think so. Like what, (laughs) what just happened here? Oh my God. Just think about Uh, it. Yeah. I'm, I don't like thinking that we would not be friends without Jodorowsky. Well, to be fair, I think we became friends over Lord of the Rings or something, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that is it, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else. That's Jodorowsky. We're done. Uh, the end of an era. <laughs> I, I, I found, uh, I found a. You said that it reminded me of this quote I just found. I had it at the bottom of my thing, and uh, it was on script writing. And he said, quote, I used to think pictures should be 12 to 14 hours. I drove myself crazy writing scripts for 12 to 14 hour movies. Now I say, well, okay, there is the Hobbit. (laughs) (laughs) An excellent point. Well, this has been an interesting series. This has been a, a, one of the stranger series we've done over the course of this podcast, but I hope that our listeners have enjoyed it. Uh, whether you enjoyed the movies or not, I hope you at least enjoyed learning about them. <laughs> uh, but let us know what you think. I mean, 
hit us up on Facebook, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, let us know what you thought of these, or better yet, head to our Discord where we can discuss every one of these episodes as they come out. And uh, next week, we will be back with another bonus episode where we will announce the next Cinema Shock Roulette, and then we'll get into another series that we will announce down the line. But uh, until then, I guess, Gary, where can you be found on the internet? I am at This Is Gary Horde on all of the socials. All right, I am at Justin underscore Bishop. You can find the podcast at cinema underscore shock or at cinemashock.net. Until next time, may the wings of liberty never lose a feather and be excellent to each other.